Mic check. I think it's working. All right. Yeah, I think we're good. Let's do a show. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. This is Just Human number 231. And we have a lot of court filings to cover today. Hope you are doing well on this Monday. I finished Defected last night. We had a good episode, I thought. Went pretty well. We had some fun. And uh, seemed like the audience enjoyed it. Disagreements and all. And uh, got done with the show and went to take my dogs out. And it was snowing. Our first snow of the year. It rained all day yesterday here in southern, uh, southern Virginia. Rained all day, which I like that weather, but it did kind of suck because we had our dogs, um, and they wanted to go out, and I wanted to take them out because we've been training them, and we needed to work on some leash training and some other things. And the rain really got in the way. It was a few times it was light enough that we could go out and walk a little bit. But most of the time it was a pretty heavy rain and I, it was, it was a uh, heavy enough that we had, I had a little bit of water come into the basement, which wasn't, isn't good. It was just a little bit, but I definitely need to find out how that's happening and, and fix it. Um, but in our yards all, I mean, there's this mud everywhere. Uh, but it was fun. It was a, quite a surprise to get done with streaming and I can hear the rain falling and then walk, put the leashes on the dog, go to the door. We open the door and huge snowflakes are falling with the rain. It was rain and snow at the same time. Um, 
And it was enough snow that this morning there was still snow on all of the vehicles and over on the trees and stuff. And um, so nice, nice. I love snow and uh, we don't get it that often here. Hopefully that is a sign we're going to have, uh, we're going to have a decent winter and get some decent amount of snow. I mean, I would really like enough snow that my kids can at least play in it um, at least one time this year. That didn't happen last year or the year before. There's been, there wasn't, uh, I think with my four-year-old, I think one time since he was born, we had enough snow that you could actually like make a snowball or mound some of it up into a little bitty snowman kind of thing. But, um, yeah, it's been, we've had some dry and mild winters since he was born. I'm hoping I like severe weather, including severe cold and severe snow. So I'll take it anyway. This morning, we have some filings to go over in several different cases. Trump's case, McGonagall's case. Um, and then I want to hit on this thing that Patrick Byrne put out because a lot of people have asked me about it. And I don't have like, I don't have a whole lot to say about it, really. Um, I'm still going through it. And anyway well i'll just i'll get to it Pe- people um have been asking me about it so i will uh i will i will get to it and we'll just go over it just and in- the initial stuff from it um in fact now that i say that i better make sure i have it pulled up where did it go but it's the filings in the trump case that are most interesting to me their special counsel smith has responded to some stuff and uh namely trump's motion to compel and then also the uh the stay uh where trump is asking for a stay in the case so let me get let me get this right here so yeah that's what i'm gonna need okay before i do this before i do this if you're interested in supporting the show, if you like the show, one, hit the thumbs up over on Rumble. Two, share the show out. I've added a playlist over on Rumble that has clips from the show. So if you're looking for some shorter clips to share with folks who you think might enjoy the show, but they look at how long it is, um, how long an episode is, and they're like, nah, I don't got two hours. I don't got three hours. I got some clips up. Send them a clip. Maybe that'll pique their interest. If you would like to do more than that, this is a user-supported show, and it's you guys' generosity and uh, you know your purchases of these products that make the show possible. So first off, there's ko-fi.com. Over in my link tree, you can find all these and in the show description. Ko-fi.com is a way to just buy me a cup of coffee straight up. You can leave a nice message with it. I really enjoy and appreciate those messages. Vincent Honey Farms, longtime sponsor, the very first advertiser I ever took on was Benson Honey Farms. And I will advertise their products as long as they allow me to because I love their honey. I have some of it right here. And going through it fairly quickly, 100% raw honey from Nebraska from an America First company. Great people, great products. If you use the affiliate link in the on my link tree or in the show description, Whatever you purchase over there, a couple dollars gets kicked my way. Same thing with bootleg products. Delicious products. I cook with them 
at least once a week, more like three to five times a week, I cook with one of their products. I made chili the other day again. Uh, it was delicious. And there was no, there were no leftovers. My whole family, we, we demolished it. Again, if you click on the link, the affiliate link, and then go over here and make a purchase, a couple of dollars gets kicked, kicked my way. And same thing with Manly Cans, which... I have the Dapper Can right here. Great products. I like this company. Happy to have them as an affiliate. And it's that it's the right time of year to have them. Uh, because if you're like me, you put off buying Christmas gifts until the very last second. And uh, then suddenly realize there's a lot of people you need to buy Christmas gifts for. If there is a manly man in your life who you think would enjoy some of these products, take a look at it. Use the affiliate link first, then go over here, look at these cans, see what you like. They do offer you like options to add things to it. So like if you're interested in say the Dapper Man can, which is a great can, there are these options right here where you can add more things to it. Just FYI, it doesn't have to be just what's right here in the picture. You can add things to it. Um, but again, if you, you know, you're looking for a Christmas present for a man. This is a great place to find to find something and make a purchase over here. A couple of dollars get kicked my way. And lastly, the merch over at redwhitebourbon45.com. You can go to the influencer collection and here I am with all of this merch with my logo on it and various sayings that I use like program yourself and understanding is greater than reacting. And as I always say, the best products over here, in my opinion, are the mugs and the pint glasses. When you make a purchase over here, a couple of dollars could kick my way. So with that out of the way, let's get to the first uh, topic here. Nice. Social Sheila says she bought some of the chili can't wait to try it. Awesome. Brown up some ground beef. He recommends, Mike at Bootleg recommends half a pound of, uh, of ground beef uh, per bag of the chili. Um, I like to do a little more than that because I just really like the chili to be really, the chili to be really meaty. But, you know, you do whatever you want to do. Okay, so Patrick Byrne has been teasing this for a while. Um, I, I like Patrick Byrne. He is quite a character, um, quite a character. Um, he's quite an intelligent man and a successful man. Um, I do think he's a patriot. One of the things I like about him most is that he is also a DOG, DOJ asset and has served multiple times as an asset. And, uh, you know, one of the things about him that I think gives him a lot of credibility is that he said he was the asset in this Operation Snow Globe thing. And he talked about it many times, and it recently came out in the Durham report. Boom, there he was in the Durham report. And he was like, you know what, that crazy story that Patrick Byrne has been telling for a couple of years now about being the guy who was supposed to solicit a, a massive monetary contribution from Hillary Clinton, that story turned out to be true. 
Patrick Byrne wasn't lying about that, which might mean he's not lying about some other things he's talked about when it comes to serving as an asset of DOJ. Um, Patrick Byrne also funded uh, to, a, I mean, I think he was the primary money man behind the Maricopa County audit, right? So I really like Patrick Byrne. I also think he's a little bit wacky sometimes, and I think he gets a little bit too excited about things and goes a little bit farther than what is maybe justified by the material that's in front of us. Uh, but hey, I'm, I think we're all guilty of that at times, including me. So I give him a lot of margin on that. But he's been teasing that he had all this dirt on Jack Smith and that he was going to bring this forward and expose Jack Smith as this super corrupt prosecutor. And that, um, I mean, I think he's even said that this is going to end Jack Smith's special counsel. I think he said that I could be wrong, but I will admit that I have a bias against these claims because I think it is my personal theory that like Trump said, Jack Smith is Mueller 2.0. And if you've read the drops and if you followed the Mueller special counsel closely and you ignored the fake news media, and if you understood that Trump engages in a lot of kayfabe, then you know that Mueller is a patriot and that the Mueller special counsel was never after Trump. It was always after the people who tried to frame Trump for Russia collusion. It was never after Trump for Russia collusion. Which is why the left hates uh, the DOJ and the FBI, because they believe they protected Trump, which they're not exactly wrong about. They did protect Trump uh, because Trump's their number one asset and uh, he was never under investigation. So Trump immediately came out when Jack Smith was appointed and said, this is Mueller 2.0. And I took that as a good sign for those reasons and more. I also looked into Jack Smith's history and I found some things that were like, ooh, that's concerning. But I also found some really positive things in Jack Smith's history, such as him working in Manhattan and then the EDNY and then him being sent to uh, Middle District of Tennessee. And then um, I found some other stories about him that were pretty good. There's an association that he went he went after the tea party 501c3s and uh he's this hatchet man who was a, an attack dog but i'm not sure how negative of a thing that is it depends on how on what kind of activities those 501c3s engaged in did they deserve to be gone after was there was it is it just political that they were gone after or was there actually something swampy about those 501c3s it's probably a mix of both maybe you'd have to examine one piece by piece so anyway i'm admitting my biases here and the reason i'm doing that is because what patrick burn has brought forward is he says that he has a whistleblower who operated who was part of the dea and who was assigned to be in europe um handling da dea operations and prosecutions and investigations in europe and that this guy has come forward and says that jack smith is known for blackmailing people in europe basically saying give me money and i won't prosecute or investigate certain people so we're going to go through part of this 
this is how uh, Patrick introduces it. He says it started off as a, t- a typical deep capture intrigue. Deep capture is his website. This one's set in Europe with whistleblowers whispering in the backs of airport hotel bars and stakeouts in obscure Swiss hamlets and back alley brush passes in Eastern European capitals. It ended with proof that that it is a liver punch to Garland's politicized Department of Justice. See, and like right there, we got narrative, which is another thing that makes me think this is just narrative. Um. The superb 151-page whistleblower complaint attached speaks for itself. Three allegations to take from it. So here's a quick synopsis of it. <clears throat> Jack Smith is the current special counsel prosecuting Donald Trump on two grounds, one related to J6, for which um, slash take full responsibility. I'm not sure what he means by that. And the other related to the crime of being ex-president with an active Department of Energy clearance possessing classified materials. Before pursuing such novel legal theories as are expressed in those indictments, Jack Smith was a U.S. prosecutor in the International Criminal Court in The Hague, where Jack Smith was a blackmailer. Bullet point one, Jack Smith or Jack was sending henchmen to Eastern Europe to convey the following message to various parties, both innocent and perhaps not so innocent. We know that during the Yugoslavian civil war, you murdered some people. Jack is going to indict you. But if you will put X amount of dollars in a suitcase for me to carry back to Jack, your problems will go away. X amount of, X amount of money, this is the next bullet point, equals 400000 to $9 million. So bribes of $7 million to $9 million were paid through Bitcoin, but not in suitcases. That's the, the allegations. If that's true... If that's true that seven to nine million dollars was paid in Bitcoin, that is very traceable. Uh, one of the mistakes that people keep making with crypto and Bitcoin is that you can easily launder money with it, which is true, but that you can also not be caught doing that. And that is not true. <laughs> uh, lots of people are learning that crypto and bitcoin are not a good idea when it comes as a as a means for laundering money it creates a very easily traced path next jack sought a 100 million dollar bribe from a head of state who refused payment and is now in prison i would like more information on that next we learned of these allegations because of a hassle of European whistleblowers who not only shared the stories, they wrote superbly detailed affidavits providing text and financial records. He says, read the 150 pages with exhibits yourself from where I sit. Jack looks stupid. Number two, in April, sorry, in April, 2022, this information was supporting documentation with supporting documentation, was provided by these key whistleblowers to the DOJ in lengthy phone calls. One of the key whistleblowers contacted the DOJ in Washington, D.C. to report it directly. Nothing happened. Then he called the U.S. Embassy in Spain. Then he received a phone call from a certain Alan Teeger of the DOJ. He then spoke to the special prosecutor's office in The Hague, who did nothing. Then he received another phone call from the DOJ's Alan Teeger. That main whistleblower then had a phone call with Alan Teeger, thinking it was someone at DOJ to whom he could safely bring this information. Initially, he thought Teeger was with the DOJ SDNY. Alan Teeger spent 
the first few minutes of the call trying to get the whistleblower to recant, and when they refused, reluctantly walked through their allegations and evidence. We know this not only from the whistleblower's affidavits, but in addition because they recorded the 90-minute Zoom call, which is dynamite to hear and which, of course, we have. Alan Teeger then buried the matter. This is likely explained by the fact that Alan Teeger turns out not to have been from DOJ Internal Affairs, nor was he in the SDNY. He actually was in The Hague with Jack Sith. I wonder if that's an intentional misspelling. In fact, Alan Teeger is a man who spent his career carrying Jack Smith's luggage around the DOJ, and he has since replaced Jack as the American prosecutor at the ICC. So while the whistleblowers thought they were blowing the whistle on Jack Smith, they were tricked into doing so to Jack Smith's own DOJ butt boy. Three, I infer, bullet point one, Attorney General Merrick Garland learned about this material 18 months ago, and he, or Lisa Monaco, the little finger of Garland's DOJ, summoned Jack Smith back to Washington, D.C. to tell him something along the lines of, listen, U.S., this is, this is the theory, okay? The claim by these whistleblower, the whistleblower is that Jack Smith extorted people for money in exchange for not being, bringing charges against them while he was in the ICC in The Hague. Patrick Byrne's theory as to why this dirt on Jack Smith has gone nowhere and how these, this, these allegations play into what Jack Smith is doing now as special counsel is this. Attorney General Merrick Garland learned about this material 18 months ago, and he, or Lisa Monaco, summoned Jack Smith back to Washington, D.C. to tell him something along the following lines. Listen, USOB, we know that you have been blackmailing people over in Europe, and we are going to put you away for 30 years, or you are going to come home and prosecute Donald Trump. We don't care how far-fetched the legal theories, you are going to indict him and hound him to thwart his return to office. This explains why Jack Smith has indicted, has indicted Trump for possessing classified materials, has indicted a man for possessing classified materials with an active DOE clearance, and for whatever that man did on J6 that no one can really explain. Mm, okay, so let's go to this first part of the, the complaint here. I think I already downloaded this, but it's okay. Let me open this up. No one has typed anything in Rumble chat for quite a while, so I hope I'm still connected over there because that's kind of unusual. I saw people reporting that Rumble was having problems, so hopefully it's still good. On my end, it looks good. Maybe you guys are just enthralled with Patrick's theory. Okay. So first right here from November 28th, 2023 via certified mail to the DOJ addressed to Michael Horowitz of the IG whistleblower complaint by John F. Moynihan. Dear Mr. Horowitz, enclosed with this letter is a whistleblower complaint being filed by my client, John F. Moynihan. Copies of this complaint are also being sent to the Inspector General of the United States Department of State, the Inspector General of the CIA, the Office of Inspector General for the Intelligence Community, and the Office of Professional Responsibility for the DOJ. 
Mr. Moynihan, a former employee of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, is a recognized expert in the areas of money laundering and financial investigations. This complaint is a result of his investigation into the allegations contained therein. As stated in the complaint, your office and the offices of those copied herein is most suited to further the investigation into the claims of the affiants as compiled by Mr. Moynihan. Please contact me with any questions. Very truly yours, Compass Law Partners, Brian R. Della Roca. So, I see, hey everybody on Pilled, I see people on Pilled saying Rumble appears to be down. Interesting. Oh well, I saw complaints about it, but might just be one of those. Rumble gonna rumble, isn't it? Rumble is going to rumble. Oh well. Some of them are over there. I see John Otter. We will keep going nonetheless. All right, so this is the whistleblower complaint. And it says it's submitted by John Francis Moynihan, care of Brian R. Della Roca, Esquire, Compass Law Partners in Maryland. Introduction. Interesting. They say that uh, I kept streaming, but they couldn't type in chat for there for a little while. No, uh, Spetzel, it's not the same Moynihan as the Clinton Foundation tax case. No, different, different guy. My name is John Francis Moynihan. I am a former employee of the Drug Enforcement D Agency. That'd be the D or administration, the DEA. And I'm currently a consultant to the DEA and other United States law enforcement agencies. I have 35 years experience investigating domestic and international money laundering cases in both criminal and civil matters. The cases I have worked on involve complex domestic and international financial transactions and have resulted in indictments, plea agreements, criminal convictions, large-scale seizures of money, and settlements in the billions of dollars. I continue to assist the Department of Justice and the Treasury Department in money laundering in other cases, some of which are currently ongoing. As a footnote which says, I currently run my own global consulting company focused on anti-money laundering efforts and am contracted to work with current case agents at DHA, DEA, HSI, and the FBI on matters involving money laundering. All of which is to say that I am a recognized expert in the areas of money laundering and financial investigations. This whistleblower complaint is being filed as a result of being approached by a decorated DEA colleague who is now retired with information he received. Sorry, I'm realizing I should just I should zoom in for y'all. This whistleblower complaint is being filed as a result of being approached by a decorated DEA colleague who is now retired with information he received from a longtime confidential informant he knew from his time as an active DEA agent. Okay, so the, the source of the allegations is a confidential, confidential informant who contacted a retired DEA agent. That DEA agent then contacted Moynihan, who's also a former DEA agent, but who is still involved in cases. Okay, so CHS is bringing an allegation to a retired DEA agent who is bringing it to another former DEA agent and then has brought it to Patrick Byrne and the IGs. 
This colleague served as a the DEA country attache in an allied European country conducting drug and money laundering investigations throughout Europe. In that role, he developed a number of cooperating, cooperating witnesses and confidential informants as part of the ongoing casework done during his employment with the DEA. After reviewing the information received from my former colleague and speaking with witnesses, I feel it is my obligation as a former employee of the DEA and current contractor to ongoing agency cases that this information be reported to you. An attached table of exhibits is included herein, herewith for your convenience and is incorporated by reference herein. Summary of Allegations As detailed herein, I have spoken with multiple witnesses deemed to be reliable, each of whom have firsthand knowledge of an, allegation, of an alleged extortion ring set up within the Kosovo Specialist Chambers, a European Union initiative ratified by Kosovo's parliament in 2016 to prosecute war crimes. The witnesses have signed affidavits attesting to the facts outlined herein. The declarations name Mr. Jack Smith, Esquire, as an active participant in a scheme that extorted millions of dollars from wealthy individuals targeted for investigation and or prosecution by the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office. Smith served as the Specialist Prosecutor from May 7, 2018 to November 18, 2022, at which time he was appointed by U.S. Attorney General Merrick B. Garland to serve as the special counsel to investigate former President Trump pursuant to order number 5559-2022. The evidence compiled also includes a tape-recorded interview conducted on April 22, 2022 by Alan Teeger, assigned to the SPO working under Smith. Like Smith, Teeger is also a former U.S. federal prosecutor. Significantly, on that tape, Tigger identifies three sets of data that can be obtained by your office. One, Tigger states that he recorded the, the April 2022, April 22nd, 2022 interview. Thus, that recording and any associated written communications by members of the SPO about statements made during that interview can be obtained by your office. Two, Tigger identifies the declarant, Halit Sahitaj, as having the reference code W043770. In my experience, such a designation for a confidential source is only given to credible confidential sources. There should be a completed vetting file on this witness that can be obtained by your office, as well as internal written communications related to the ref witness's reference code. Three, Teeger states that he is, quote, reading from a transcript of an interview of Halit Sahitaj conducted on October 1st, 2020 by SPO prosecutor David Harbach, also a former U.S. federal prosecutor. Thus, that transcript and any related communications, written communications by members of the SPO about statements made during that interview can be obtained by your office. In addition to the information outlined above, three other witnesses have provided affidavits based on personal knowledge regarding this extortion scheme. Two of, those, two of these declarants are a husband and wife who are recognized journalists working in Albania and Kosovo. They have worked for major news organizations including the BBC, Sky News, and CNN. 
Significantly, the husband in his declaration also identified Charles McGonagall, who we will, we're going to get, we're going to talk about him in a little while. A 22-year veteran of the FBI and former head of counterintelligence for the FBI's New York field office as having met with members of this extortion ring in a restaurant in Tirana, Albania during the relevant time periods. McGonagall recently accepted plea deals by federal prosecutors in New York and Washington, D.C. The criminal violations McGonagall pled guilty to are related to, one, payments he received from a sanctioned Russian oligarch after he retired, that'd be Oleg Deripaska, and two, concealing hundreds of thousands of dollars he received from a former employee of an Albanian intelligence agency, Agron Neza, while McGonagall was employed at the FBI. The affidavits made by the witnesses in this matter are based on personal knowledge. All these witnesses have stated that they are willing to appear in person and give additional sworn testimony in any future proceedings. For all of the reasons above, this matter is being reported to you for review. The affidavits are attached as exhibits A through D. The transcript of the tape-recorded interview of Halit by Tigger is attached as exhibit E. The recording of the Tigger interview is available upon request. Also attached as exhibits F through J are images of the meetings between individuals named herein and text message chains. Parties. The Kosovo Specialist Chambers and Specialist Prosecutor's Office. The Kosovo Specialist Chambers and Specialist Prosecutor's Office, KSC slash SPO, were established pursuant to an international agreement ratified by the Kosovo Assembly, the passage of a constitutional amendment, and the enactment of a law on Kosovo Specialist Chambers and Specialist Prosecutor's Office. The KSC slash SPO are of temporary nature, with a specific mandate and jurisdiction over crimes against humanity, war crimes, and other crimes pursuant to Kosovo law, which were commenced or committed in Kosovo between January 1st, 1998 and December 31st, 2000, by or against citizens of Kosovo or the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. The KSC slash SPO have a seat in The Hague, the Netherlands. Their staff is international, as are the judges, the specialist prosecutor, and the registrar. The first chief specialist prosecutor was a former U.S. federal prosecutor named David Schwindemann, who served in that role from September 1st, 2016 through March 31st, 2018. Smith replaced Schwindemann as the chief specialist prosecutor on or about May 7th, 2018, and served in that role until November 18th, 2022. David Harbach, another former U.S. special prose- or federal prosecutor who had previously worked with Smith, served as a prosecutor at the SPO from 2019 through November 2021. Teeger was at the SPO at all relevant times and remains there of the, as of this date. Two, sworn affidavits. The four witnesses whose affidavits are attached hereto are Malayam Zika, husband of Eldira Kefalija, and a well-known journalist in Kosovo. Zika testified that he has worked in the news business since 1986, including for the Swedish radio, television, and Scandinavian newspapers, BBC, Sky News, ITN, CNN, and other world-known newspapers. As a reporter, Zika also described how he investigated organized crime in Kosovo. His affidavit is, att- is attached as Exhibit A. Adlira Kefalija, wife of Miliam Zika and also a well-known journalist in Kosovo, Eldira testified that she worked in Albania 
as a journalist starting from 98 up to 2005 when she worked as chief editor of news for TV Alsat. When she moved to Kosovo, she continued working as a journalist for RTK and other media with her husband. Affidavit for her is Exhibit B. Halit Sahit Aj, or what? I, I don't know. I'm going to do my best with these names. Y'all be kind to me. A wealthy businessman in Spain <coughs> with whom the SBO assigned the reference code W04370. As described above, Halit gave recorded interviews to Harbach on or about October 1st, 2020, and Tiger on April 22nd, 2022. Affidavit is attached as Exhibit C. Transcript of the interview by Alan Teeger is attached as Exhibit E and identified in Darko's affidavit. Darko Perovich is a citizen of Montenegro and close confidant of both Milo Djukanovic, the former president of Montenegro, and Zoran Lasovic, the former head of the Montenegro Special Anti-Crime Unit. The affidavit is attached as Exhibit D. Individuals identified in the affidavits are Jack Smith, David Harbach, and Alan Teeger. David Schwindeman, Faika Mary, also known as Florian. He is, according to Halit, and Mary represented himself as working with Jack Smith in the CIA. Halit provided a photograph of Amiri's driver's license below. And now we have the CIA involved in this. So supposedly this Florian or Faika Mary represented himself as working with Jack Smith. Doesn't say he did. It just said he represented himself as working with Jack Smith and with the CIA. President Hashim Thasi or Thachi, former president of Kosovo, who was indicted for war crimes by the SPO in April of 2020. Agroneza, that'd be somebody who was close with McGonagall. And then Charles McGonagall, who we are familiar with, but I'll go ahead and read this because I love driving this home that this guy got caught. Former special agent in charge of counterintelligence in the New York City field office of the FBI, an owner of an Albanian corporation listed as law office and investigation with Mark Rossini, another former FBI agent whose law enforcement career ended after he pleaded guilty to illegally accessing FBI files in 2007 on behalf of his girlfriend. According to a press release dated August 15th, 2023, from the Office of Public Affairs of the U.S. Department of Justice, McGonagall pled guilty to conspiring to violate the International Emergency Economic Powers Act and to commit money laundering in connection with his 2021 agreement to provide services to Oleg Deripaska, a sanctioned Russian oligarch. According to the press release, in accordance with an agreement reached with federal prosecutors, McGonagall pleaded guilty to conspiracy to violate the IEEPA and to commit money laundering. McGonagall admitted to performing research about Vladimir Potanin for Deripaska. Potanin is a rival of Deripaska, and the research was being done in an attempt to get Potanin added to the U.S. blacklist. McGonagall also admitted to accepting and concealing a $17,500 payment from Deripaska in 2021, knowing that the payment violation sanctioned the U.S. had placed on the oligarch in 2018. Prosecutors agreed to drop other charges against McGonagall stemming from his collusion with Deripaska to violate U.S. sanctions. On September 22, 2023, McGonagall pleaded guilty to accepting $225,000 from an Albanian-American, Agron Neza, a former Albanian intelligence officer who McGonagall admitted was helping him foster relationships in Albania to help lay the groundwork for future business opportunities in the country. Next, Hillary Clinton 
is identified in Halit's affidavit. The reference to Smith allegedly asked if Potanin still held evidence of corruption by Hillary Clinton. Florim Alaj, under current indictment in Pristina, Kosovo, for breaking into computer systems, self-judgment, and misuse of trust. Alaj is the alleged recipient of two separate transfers of cryptocurrency to wallets he controls. The total value of the transfers is said to equal $16 million in cryptocurrency. Alaj is the franchise holder of Bitcoin ATM machines in Kosovo. Current research points to Alaj having a cybersecurity firm and pornography business as well. I wonder if he knows the Tate brothers. While performing research on Alaj, he was located in Zug, Switzerland. He was contacted by telephone and claimed to be out of Switzerland at the time. He was not. Alaj called the contact number back and said, I know I have problems with Americans, but I'm not sure to meet at this time. Subsequently, he refused to meet to discuss the current events on this matter. Oh, so if they this guy's already been indicted, I wonder if they have access to all this banking information. I would assume he does, and they can trace where this cryptocurrency came from and to whom it was being, you know, targeted to. It was who it was supposed to go to. Vladimir Potanin, he is one of the biggest Russian oligarchs there is, a very rich man. Uh, Michael Prochorov, another Russian oligarch. All right, summary of affidavits. I'm going to need a little bit more coffee. That sucks that uh, Rumble's having so much trouble this morning. But I won't bash them too... I won't be too harsh on them because... They have been doing pretty well for quite a long time. You know, Rumble's been pretty good. It's had some hiccups lately. It really has. Oh, yeah, I can tell it's definitely having problems. I have like... I have like 115th or 120th, the usual number of viewers over there that I typically have when I'm live. Um, But I won't be too harsh on them because I, I am a big fan of the improvements they're making. I'm really thankful they added Playlist. And it's working for some people. So it sounds like it's a node issue where certain areas are out. We'll keep rolling. I'm also, I'm also live on um, Twitter and on DLive and on pill.net. So if you want to go to one of those places, you will, you will find me. All right, the summary of my my main concern honestly is not whether or not Rumble's working right now and how many people are watching me live although I like having a live audience and I enjoy the chat over there. My main concern is if the recording like the live stream actually stays there. Because if it doesn't, then I got to re-upload the show and I lose like everything. Um so having to re-upload always always sucks. Um I see someone just posted. Hold on a second. Yeah, Rumble has posted saying that they're having trouble. I also saw some posts saying that people were having trouble with True Social this morning. And I had trouble with True Social this morning, and they use the same servers. So, anyway. Summary of affidavits. I hope this is interesting to y'all. It's interesting to me, and I, I am trying to keep a very open mind here about this. Um... 
I've admitted my biases early on because I just want y'all the guys to be aware where I'm at, but, um, it's also for me to be aware of them, but I am will. I am, I am very willing to entertain the idea that this is what has going on. I don't Patrick Burns theory that, that Smith is being blackmailed into going after Trump. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not very warm to that. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I also don't think it's necessary because if Jack Smith is so corrupt that he's taking these bribes and stuff, then isn't he already of, isn't he already the caliber of a person who would take the assignment anyway to go after Trump? Like, I don't think there's this need for a thing where Jack Smith is being strong armed into doing it under threat of indictments against him. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. So, all right. Summary of affidavits from Zika. Zika, born in Kosovo, but now a citizen of Sweden, is a journalist. Zika has signed a sworn affidavit of his interactions with members of the SPO, including Smith and Schwindemann, as well as with a Mary McGonagall, Neza, and former investigators involved with the European Union rule of law mission in Kosovo. Known as Ulex. The affidavit recounts incidents of the prosecutors at the SPO extorting wealthy individuals in exchange for one, not being indicted, two, not having their name added to the list of indictments. In the affidavit, Zika names individuals who were present at meetings. Zika's identification of these individuals will enable verification of his story. Further information is available upon request. Zika's affidavit is attached as Exhibit A. Edlira. Edlira, born in Albania, is now a citizen of Sweden, and as described above, is Zika's wife, is also a journalist. Her affidavit confirms the information outlined in Zika's affidavit and adds her own narrative to the scenario. Her affidavit also outlines her interactions with an alleged CIA agent, a Mary, and her personal knowledge of incidents where the SPO allegedly extorted individuals in exchange for special treatment. Halit, born in Kosovo and living in Spain, is an SPO witness who was assigned the number W04370. His affidavit outlines numerous interactions with a Mary, Jack Smith, Russian oligarchs, friends and family of Kosovo President Thatchi, and others. Halit discusses being induced into doing the bidding of the specialist prosecutor's office to extort Russian oligarchs and the family and friends of Thatchi in exchange for leniency. Specifically, and Mary directed Halit to find Russian oligarchs who are on the U.S. sanction list so they could offer assistance to get them off the list or for those oligarchs, oligarchs who are not on the list to keep them off. That sounds like the racket that McGonagall was running. And Mary, so like that's totally believable to me. Like that scenario that there's like this kind of a, a thing, this type of a racket going is totally believable to me. Um, I don't doubt that at all. Ameri told Halit that the Russian oligarchs would have to, one, sign a contract to work for the Central Intelligence Agency and provide information about Vladimir Putin and pay money into a, quote, black fund for operational expenses. Halit also outlines a question by Jack Smith about whether Vladimir Putin is, quote, still in possession of evidence of corruption by Hillary Clinton. 
Smith was wondering if Halit knew if Patanen shared the evidence with anyone in the Secret Service. What does Smith know about Patanen and Hillary Clinton, and how does he have this information? In the end, Halit heard through an intermediary that Patanen paid 9 million euros to the Black Fund. <coughs> Halit spoke with Michael Procharov with an offer to get him off the sanction list or to keep him off. He could not recall whether at that time Procharov was already on the list. From what Halit understood, the meeting was successful. Halit heard through an intermediary that Procharov has paid 7 million euro to the Black Funds. When Halit pushed back, Ameri countered, saying that he knew where Halit works and Ameri could easily destroy Halit's life, his family, and everything Halit had ever worked for. Halit was coached by Smith and his staff to testify to certain information. When asked how he knew all of the information he provided since he did not live in Kosovo, Halit used Smith's name as a way to change the subject. Halit maintained a blue notebook with his notes about how to testify when he was being coached by Smith and his staff. Images of pages from the blue notebook are attached as Exhibit K. Good morning, Miss Mo, and good morning, Bootleg Salsa. Good to see y'all. Halit's affidavit contains numerous allegations. Mo says she's uh, really busy because she has so much to ship and almost cried with no Kyle or Badlands. Well, I'm glad you're here. Thank you, everybody, for uh, buying honey from Mo. Go buy some more so she has more work to do. All right. Halit's affidavit contains numerous allegations that can be investigated by your office. Halit's affidavit is attached to Exhibit C. Transcript of his interview with Tigger is attached to Exhibit E. The recording of the interview is available upon request. Darko. Of course, he's going to be a black hat, right? Darko, a citizen of Montenegro who currently resides in Spain, was introduced to the SPO scheme through Halit. Darko was told that the SPO, particularly Jack Smith, was focused, quote, focused on cleaning up corruption in Kosovo and the region, including Montenegro. He was told that the SPO had a list of 16 people from Montenegro that he wanted to investigate and possibly arrest. <laughs> Mo says, okay, deal. I'll ship more if you do more shows. <laughs> I'm going to try and get three shows in this week, today, Wednesday, and Friday. Uh, that's my goal. Next week, though, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to do any shows. Um, cause I will be in Texas next week. All right. He was told that the SBO had a list of 16 people from Montenegro that he quote, he wanted to investigate and possibly arrest. Smith wanted Darko to send a message to Montenegro president Djokovic, Djokovic, a close friend of Darko and to police commander Zoran Lazovic. Lazovic, also a friend of Darko. There's a footnote. Lazovic was dismissed as senior police officer of organized crime and corruption by the Montenegro government in March 2021. Okay. All right. When Darko discussed the request with Amiri, Amiri told Darko that the SPO was investigating corruption in Montenegro to clear the road for Montenegro to become a full member of the European Union. Mary also told Darko that his friend Lazo Lazovic was on the list of 16 people under suspicion. 
At Ameri's request, Darko set up a meeting between Lazovich and Ameri in Switzerland, which occurred on February 11, 2021, at the Park Hyatt Hotel in Zurich. During that meeting, Ameri and a prosecutor from the SPO asked Lazovich if he and President Djokovic would testify in their case against Kosovo President Thaci. Lazovich allegedly responded that he could not speak on behalf of the president, but that he did not know anything about Thaci. A short time after the meeting, Ameri told Darko that, quote, his office and prosecutor Jack Smith's office believed Montenegro should not be punished and that the U.S. wanted to help clean up the corruption. Ameri continued by saying that, quote, some people would need to be arrested and that the program would take three to five years. Ameri then wrote down the number, 100 million. Darko understood Ameri to be indicating that, in exchange for the payment of 100 million, Smith would refrain from indicting Djokovic and Lazovic. Hmm. Darko's affidavit contains numerous allegations that can be investigated by your office. Darko's affidavit is attached to Exhibit D. Conclusions. All affidavits point to a Mary as being the messenger between the affiants and whoever was directing the alleged extortion scheme. So that would be the CIA guy. I think we should all take that regardless of your opinion of Jack Smith. I think we should all take that as a huge red flag. That the key figure here is reportedly CIA. Each affiant discusses the SPO and Smith's involvement and some discuss other prosecutors from the SPO. Some affiants even mention direct contact with Smith. The affidavits paint an elaborate picture of an alleged extortion scheme where those who committed war crimes were able to pay prosecutors at the SBO for a get-out-of-jail-free card. Other alleged extortion schemes involved simply finding wealthy individuals who were not accused of any war crimes and requiring them to pay to keep their names off the, off the list as war criminals. The similarity of the events outlined in the affidavits and the parties mentioned in the affidavits raised numerous questions. First, it must be established whether a Mary, at the time he was making threats and demanding all payoffs, was indeed working with the SPO. Okay, like that. Okay. That's, an, that's another red flag. Was a Mary actually working for the special prosecutor's office and was he actually working for or with Jack Smith as he claimed? If that's not set in stone here with this whistleblower complaint, then that's a huge, that's a huge flaw. That's a huge flaw. Additionally, is a Mary in fact an operative or agent of the central intelligence agency? If Ameri is with the CIA, was he acting in his capacity as, a, as an operative or agent of the CIA when meeting with the affiants? As mentioned above, what does Smith know about evidence of... Okay. Those are huge red flags, guys. Like, I know I'm biased, but those are huge red flags. You have an Eastern European country that is known for corruption that is trying to get into the European Union and that is being investigated for money laundering, drug trafficking, human trafficking, war crimes, all sorts of things. Smith is the prosecutor who is investigating all these things. And then you have this person 
who claims to represent Smith and the SPO, but we don't have, it's not even confirmed in the whistleblower complaint that he does represent him or even ever did. And this guy is supposedly CIA who is going to these same corrupt people that are under investigation and is trying to extort them for money saying he'll get Jack Smith off your back if you pay me money. Like this is very typical extortion racket setup here. And until you can connect a Mary with Jack Smith, like solid connection between them, it just looks like a Mary being a swamp creature trying to extort other swamp creatures. Like a typical mafioso, right? Like a typical mafioso thug. Next part, as mentioned above, what does Smith know about evidence of corruption by Hillary Clinton? When and how did Smith learn of this information? What did Smith do with this information? Is it being investigated? Why did Smith ask Patanen this question? Okay. Does Smith know Florim Alage, the holder of the cryptocurrency with Patanen's and Protroff's payments? How does Smith know Alage? Did Smith interact with them? Did Smith ever meet with disgraced FBI agent McGonagall? If so, where, when, and for what purpose did Smith know McGonagall was interacting with SPO staff? All right. All of these questions must be answered before any of this can connect to Jack Smith. Okay. In conclusion, I'm finding myself, this is all written by John F. Moynihan, the whistleblower. All of these unanswered questions coupled with the allegations contained in the affidavits warrant an investigation by the United States government. In con conclusion, finding myself in possession of these serious allegations and being unable to investigate or corroborate them further, I bring this information to your attention because your office has access to the information, the ability to obtain additional information, and the authority to investigate this further. The affiants are available to, to discuss their claims with you at your request. Further information will also be provided upon request. All communications should be through my attorney who is submitting this complaint on my behalf. Signed, John F. Moynihan. All right, so I'm not going to go into the rest of it. I mean, I'm still going through it myself. I've read some of this. I've read some of Zika and Eldira's exhibits, and then I've scanned some of these other exhibits. There's quite a lot here. and we It would be the entire show. And I have other things I want to get to, but this is what Patrick Smith has, I mean, um, Patrick Byrne has brought out and I will link it in chat and I'll decide if we're going to go back to it. But a lot of people had asked me about it and now you know the, the main points of what Patrick Byrne is claiming he has uncovered. It's this whistleblower complaint alleging these schemes by Jack Smith. And then now you also know where I take issue with it a bit, or at least some red flags that I see with it. Um, where I wanted to show. It is a lot of narrative and just allegations without evidence, but some evidence is provided in here. It does have some photo IDs of the people. And then it has a transcript of the interview that was done. 
So that counts as hard evidence. And then it's got some text messages right here, which are really hard to read, almost impossible to read. It's got some photos. And then it has these text messages are actually easy to read. These are good. It's got these text messages as well. And then it has these notes, which some of these notes are really hard to read. Uh, this is that blue notebook that was mentioned earlier. So there is some evidence in here, but until you can figure out whether or not the, like if this Amiri guy doesn't connect at all to the SPO or to um, Smith, then this is, I wouldn't say it's a nothing burger, but it doesn't connect to Jack Smith. So, and as I admitted my biases, like my general feeling here, my intuition, my intuition is that Patrick Byrne is doing his part to try and keep up the narrative that Jack Smith is a monster. He's just doing his part to feed that narrative by bringing forth this whole thing. Like, that's my general sense. Okay, next. We got, remember the uh, hearing? Remember the hearing that we play? I played a part of it on, um, Oh, excuse me. I better start that over because I won't make a good clip if I start off yawning at the beginning of it. <laughs> All right. You remember that hearing that we uh, had with the uh, appeals court for the um, for D.C. And they were arguing about the gag order that Shukin put on Trump and that it was way too broad and basically meant that he couldn't talk about anything. Um, and they had that hearing that lasted like three hours. Um, and I thought it was a great listen, but other people didn't really think it was that great, but the court seemed to be pretty, pretty fair, pretty even handed with both sides of the argument. Um, they came out with a ruling. It's a 68 page unanimous ruling, which largely upholds judge Shukin's gag order on Trump, but it narrows it. Okay. So, I'm going to go through this short thread on it because we're not going to read the whole 68-page filing this morning. Uh, I'm going to go through this short thread on it from Roger Parloff, who is definitely a liberal. Um, he's the senior editor over at Lawfare. But he'll take out the key points in it. It'll be good enough. All right, so the key challenge to uh, this was that SCOTUS had said in 1966 after a media circus had tainted a defendant's conviction that the trial judge should have done more to curb the trial participant's speech, but it had never defined exactly what. Um, okay. I was kind of confused by how he did his ellipsis. It never, it had never defined exactly what SCOTUS had in 1991 defined the showing necessary to curb a defense attorney's speech, but not the higher showing necessary to curb a criminal defendant's speech, let alone a defendant running for president. 
You know the basics of basics of the factual record, but the D.C. Circuit emphasized the following series of in- incidents. Trump's early threat of, quote, if you go after me, I'm coming after you, which was followed the next day by racist death threats against Chukin. Then you have Trump's attacks on likely witnesses, such as Mike Pence, Mark Meadows, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, Special Counsel Jack Smith's wife, um, New York State Judge Ingeron and his clerk, um, which spurred hundreds of harassing and threatening messages labeling them Nazis, dirty Jews, child molesters, etc., etc. As well as the voluminous record of Trump's attacks upon election workers and officials post-2020 which triggered harassment forcing harassment forcing several to flee their homes with additional details often redacted from the public record in this context the panel said they were balancing two now this is, here's the real crux of it the panel of the the appeals panel said they were balancing two paramount constitutional interests one the freedom of speech guaranteed by the first amendment and the federal court's vital Article Three duty to ensure the fair and orderly administration of justice in criminal cases. While the panel agreed that with Trump that a criminal defendant had a greater right to speak out than a defense attorney, <coughs> he was also, <coughs> pardon me, as a trial participant, subject to more regulation than a mere outsider to the litigation, like a newspaper. Playing it safe, the panel said, quote, we assume without deciding that the most demanding level of scrutiny applies here and that only a significant and imminent threat to the administration of criminal justice would justify a gag order. They say that Trump's conduct met that standard. The most ironclad part of the ruling is the part limiting Trump's speech about witnesses. Congress expressly permits courts to bar indicted felons from speaking directly to witnesses, and Trump's attorneys admitted that much was constitutional. The restriction would mean little, the panel wrote, if Trump could evade it by making the same statements to a crowd, knowing or expecting that a witness will get the message. In effect, Trump would just be laundering his forbidden witness contacts through social media postings. To some witnesses, um, though some witnesses are powerful figures, such as Bill Barr and General Milley, unlikely to fold under Trump's attacks, the panel was concerned about the potential undertow impact in deterring chilling and altering testimony from less powerful witnesses. The panel also approved Judge Chukin's decision to protect court and prosecutorial staff. Quote, just as a court is duty-bound to prevent a trial from devolving into carnival, so too can it prevent trial participants and staff from having to operate under siege. Having said all that, the panel still thought Chukin's order could have been more narrowly tailored in three respects. Regarding witnesses, some were public figures who'd written books or articles attacking Trump in ways that don't relate to the trial. Trump, quote, Trump has a First Amendment public interest in publicly debating those individuals' commentaries in a way that is independent of and disassociated from any role they might have in the trial. 
Oops. I didn't mean to do that. Second, the panel said Trump had a had a right to attack special counsel Smith himself because he was indistinguishable from quote, the institution he represents. Finally, with respect to court and prosecutorial staff, the panel narrowed the order to reach only those statements that quote, are made with an intent to materially interfere with the counsel's or staff's work. Mere intemperate or rude remarks are not enough. So, he can uh he can call Jack Smith a liar. Even though DOJ tried to argue there that that was insight that was insightful. He doesn't have to say a untruth speaker. He can say Jack Smith is a liar. Finally, with respect to court oh, I already read that. So the crux of the final narrowed order is this, and I'm going to read it in full. Specifically, we affirm the order to the extent it prohibits all parties and their counsel from making or directing others to make public statements about well, about known or reasonably foreseeable witnesses concerning their potential participation in the investigation or in the criminal proceeding. So Trump can't have other people attack them for him. The order is also affirmed to the extent it prohibits all parties and their counsel from making or directing others to make public statements about one counsel in the case other than the special counsel, members of the court staff and counsel staff, and three, the family members of any counselor staff member. If those statements are made with the intent to materially interfere with or to cause others to materially interfere with the counsel or the staff's work in the, this criminal case, or with the knowledge that such interference is highly likely to result we vacate the order to the extent it covers speech beyond those speci those specified categories. The administrative stay issued by this court on November 3rd, 2023 is hereby dissolved. While these tweaks should protect the order from reversal, they do give Trump leeway to straddle some murky lines. Trump is a master at maintaining plausible deniability. Don't we know it? Don't we know it, folks? It's kind of funny to read a leftist journal say that. <laughs> and his apologists profess bottomless gullibility vis-a-vis -vis these ploys. Uh, I have to agree with that uh, to some degree. I do think people on the right have a gullibility problem. I also think the same of people on the left. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol, blah, 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 blah. All right, so... That is the ruling on the third on the uh, the Judge Chukin gag order, and honestly, it's a win for Trump. Honestly, it's a win. He can still attack it. He just can't make personal attacks against certain people, which I don't think he was really making that personal of attacks anyway. But what really happened here is that shitty people did shitty things. And then claim they did it on behalf of Trump, which allowed—I mean, which allowed uh, Special Counsel Smith and others in the media to say, "See, Trump said a mean thing or a rude thing about Judge Ingeron, and now they're getting phone calls saying anti-Semitic things and ra making racist remarks." And just typical, shitty people are getting Trump in. Pro the only reason this gag order was as severe as it was is because of. Just shitty people doing things like that. 
Um, anyway, it's not exactly what the left would have wanted. I don't know if I can say it's a win for Trump, but it's definitely not a win for Jack Smith. It's not a win for Jack Smith because it doesn't say Trump has to shut up. It's, it says, look, you can't make personal attacks on court staff or the family of counsel. But you can call Jack Smith a liar and a monster and whatever else, and the same for DOJ and the same for the president who you're running against. So it's it's good. I remember when I read um when I read the gag order on this show, my takeaway from it is eh, I don't necessarily disagree with this gag order. I just think it's far too broad. Far too broad. And the D.C. Court of Appeals agreed. Okay, now i got to log into this thing again. I hope it doesn't make me pay for all these files again. That would kind of suck. Okay, so over in Trump's cases. Let me make sure. It timed out this. Why, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing, Pacer? Pacer. I've already logged in. Why do you, I don't, I'm not a, what is going on? It is going to make me pay for it again. You bastards. Okay. Cannot display, cannot display. Bah. Hey, sir, this is a very professional show and you are messing things up. Okay. Over in the docs case in Florida, one, there's been some motions for travel and those have been granted. But the more interesting thing is these, uh, the SIPA filings and the supplemental response to saying discovery order. Um, let me go down here. Okay. It gave me docket number 235. It didn't pull that one away from me. Allegedly wild boar. Allegedly, this is a professional show. Dak, good morning. Salt, good morning. Music, good morning. Snarky, good morning. Team Smooth. Rocky's Girl. I see some names I recognize. Road Dog. Becky, Persnick, Angel Wings. Good morning. I'm glad it's I'm glad that uh Rumble is working for you guys. Hopefully it stays up. Let's see, I had all of these open and Rumble had to go and close them for me. Or uh, not Rumble, Pacer did. Okay, so I got 235. That's the supplemental response. I want that. 236, 237. Did it give me those? Which one is this? Come on. There's 237. This should be 236. Show it to me. Show it to me. There we go. 237, 238. All right, now we got them back up. Okay, it only made me pay a dollar and twenty cents. <laughs> Thanks, music and fiction. Music and fiction just covered it. Thank you. John Otter on Foxhole wants me to look at HB thirty one fifty eight Explore America Act of twenty twenty three Natural Resource Committee. I don't know anything about it. First, I've heard of it. Maybe I'll take a look at it, but no guarantees, man. No guarantees. 
right. Um, first, 235. So this is the government's supplemental response to the standing discovery order. All right, this pleading, blah, 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 per protective order, the government has provided this. What I'm really interested in and what this reveals about what they've given. The reason I'm going through this is because I'm just interested in whatever productions have been made of classified material to the defense and whether or not there's anything curious about it. Like, that's the whole reason I'm going into this. Per the protective order, the government has provided seven prior productions of unclassified discovery. On December 6th, the government provided an eighth production of unclassified discovery. Production eight consisted of 2,000 pages and includes material previously produced in classified discovery. Ooh. That is unclassified or which the relevant equity holders have determined that the documents no longer need to be protected through classification. So there's been declassification. Check this out. There's material in this in these 2000 pages that were just provided a few days ago to Trump's defense that was previously classified but has now been unclassified or declassified that's kind of interesting what caused them to be declassified might there be some other things that are overly classified and will be declassified before the trial might Trump's team be able to zero in on this type of thing and say, wait a minute. What's going on here with the special counsel? What is the government doing with classifying and declassifying things during the middle of this case? Interesting. Interesting. Or that wild boar. Did they produce them as if they were classified and then be like, oops, actually Trump declassified this. Okay. Here it is in the unclassified production now, even though we previously represented it as being classified. Interesting. That may, that may put a pin in that. This may come up later. All right. Per the SIPA section three protective orders issued in this case, the government has provided five prior productions of classified discovery. On December 1st, 2023, the government placed a sixth production of classified discovery in an accredited facility in the Southern District of Florida, which was tra transferred to the defense skiff on December 5th, once a CISO was available to receive it. The defense team... Trump's team has their own skiff. Trump cannot be trusted with documents bearing classification markings. Even though they are at Mar-a-Lago, which is one of the most secure properties in the country, with secret service and private security and cameras previously had a skiff fully accredited skiff inside of it. Nope. It can't be trusted there, but the defense team can have their own skiff. Classified production six, which consists of less than 90 pages 
includes one additional materials related to the original classification authority reviews conducted in this case. Oh, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Trump and team had specifically requested that because that's like the paper trail of how these things became classified. And that may be able to speak to um, the possibility that this stuff was classified after Trump left office and he had previously declassed it. So they reclassified it in order to create a crime. Two, additional documents related to a specific indictment count. Well, that's vague. Two, additional documents related to a specific indictment count. Interesting. On November 6, or December 6, 2023, the government placed a seventh production of classified discovery in an accredited facility in Southern District of Florida, which will be transferred to the defense skiff on December 7th. Classified Production 7 consists of a single page. One page. The government responds to the specific items identified in the standing discovery order as set forth below. B, there was no A. Okay. B, demand for reciprocal discovery. The United States requests the disclosure and production of those items described and listed in paragraph B of the standing discovery order as provided by the Federal Criminal Rule of Procedure of 16B. C, the government is providing information or material known to the United States that may be favorable to either defendant on the issues of guilt or punishment within the scope of Brady. D, the government has disclosed and will continue to disclose any payments, promises of immunity, leniency, preferential treatment, or other inducements made to prospective government witnesses. J, the government's discovery productions include grand jury testimony and recordings of witnesses who may testify for the government at trial. The government is aware of continuing duty to disclose newly discovered additional information required by the standing order, blah, blah, blah. Respectfully submitted, Smith, Bratt, Edelstein, Harbach. Ooh, is this the same... David Harbaugh that was mentioned in Patrick Burns article. Is it the same Harbaugh? Just a moment. Ah, that gummit, Patrick. That gummit, you can't, I can't. I can't word search this document. Grr. That is frustrating. All right, let me let me find this David Harbach person. Did they have the same middle initial? Did it give me a middle initial for the Harbach guy over here? It just says David Harbach. Yep, same guy. DOJ attorney who is currently serving on Smith's team to investigate former President Trump. Okay, same guy. Okay. All right. Let's certify. Okay, that's it for that page. All right. And then we have a notice of filing the government hereby notices. They filed three ex parte in camera under seal motions pursuant to SIPA section four, one for each of the three defendants under seal with the court by delivering them to the CISO on December 6th. This is, let's see, does it tell me how many pages this is? 
No, it's two thirty six test one. What I'm look, what I really want to see is this like that eighty five page filing that he was saying he was going to make. Um, I'm interested in that. Okay, then we have President Trump coming in on December sixth. And he's filed a motion for access to the SIPA four filings. So the this filing right here that is ex parte in camera, that means that it's just these filings are just between the special counsel and the judge. And so then Trump's team here is coming in saying, We want to see this stuff too. Let's see, it's referencing ECF number two thirty-six. This right here is electronic court file document 236. That's what that ECF means. Electronic court file number 236. Electronic court file 236. Dak, thank you for being a monthly supporter. Appreciate it. Uh, Social Sheila asked, whatever happened to the documents that were so classified they didn't want to release them for discovery? Um, if you're talking about the special measure documents, they ended up providing them. But then we still have, there's still a big issue in this case. If you're, you may be thinking of the DC case where Trump filed that motion to compel discovery from all the different agencies uh, related, to, related to election fraud. If that's what you're thinking of, that's still an ongoing matter. But in this case, as far as discovery goes, Trump and team have gotten access to a whole bunch of it, if I recall correctly. Um, okay. This is Trump's motion for access to the SIPA 4 filings. All right. That Jack Smith just made. A motion pursuant to SIPA 4 is a... SIPA is the Classified Information Procedures Act. I think is what the acronym stands for. Is a critical juncture where the government asks the court to endorse the withholding of discoverable material by determining whether the material is relevant or helpful to the defense. In effect, prosecutors filing a motion pursuant to this provision are seeking permission to withhold Brady material. These motions require the court to stand in a defendant's shoes, predict defenses the defendant has not yet presented, and is entitled to develop and modify until the case is submitted to the jury for deliberations, and protect important defense rights to exculpatory information and impeachment material. Owing in part to these complexities, the court has already noted that, quote, special circumstances may justify requiring that SIPA 4 motions be litigated in an adversarial setting. This case presents such circumstances. For four years, President Trump acted on a public mandate to access the nation's most sensitive secrets for the benefit of the country. He was the central classification authority in the United States. Today, he is the leading candidate to assume that role again in 2025. Despite politically motivated efforts by the Biden administration to remove him from the election, including this case. The special counsel's office has produced to President Trump and his counsel a large volume of documents and information that the office regards as, quote, highly sensitive. Although we dispute the office's assessments of those materials, it is inconsistent. Okay, I love that because that shows me that what is something that's still on the table is Trump's team addressing the classification of those 
documents themselves. It is inconceivable that the conceitedly discoverable information the office now seeks to withhold from President Trump and his counsel through ex parte proceedings is any more sensitive. Further, in light of the office's record of misrepresentations and abuses of sealing and ex parte processes in this case, which Wild Boar just pointed out in the chat. Slow down, Wild Boar. I'm getting to it. The court cannot simply take the prosecutor's word for it. <laughs> Quote, national security concerns must not become a talisman we use to ward off inconvenient claims. That is from Ziegler versus Abbasi, 2017. Cleared counsel for President Trump seek attorneys' eyes-only access to these filings so that we can challenge the office's assertions in adversarial proceedings that will facilitate more reliable decision-making in the application of the relevant and helpful standard under SIPA 4. In addition, the court should require the special counsel's office to file redacted versions of its SIPA 4 submissions on the public docket so that the public and the press can access the unclassified portions of these materials. I bet you Judge Cannon is going to agree with that because she's already spoke to that previously and said that she wants as much of this stuff to play out in public as possible because of the huge public interest in the case. Background. In a June 23rd, 2023 filing, the special counsel's office agreed to, quote, disclose promptly all witness statements and associated memorialization of those statements, even if they would not be deemed discoverable under 18 U.S.C. 3500. On July 18th, 2023, the special counsel's office told the court that all discovery would be available on day one. That was obviously not true. It is now clear that these were misrepresentations, which the office still has not addressed and were intended to unfairly prejudice President Trump and his co-defendants by setting an unconstitutionally rushed trial date. During a hearing on July 18, 2023, the special counsel's office estimated that any SIPA for litigation would be fairly minimal. At the sealed hearing on September 12th, the office explained that some of the documents at issue in the anticipated SIPA 4 motion were a subset of a larger category of documents that the office produced to President Trump. The office's acknowledgement that similar types of materials had already been produced undercuts its position regarding the need for ex parte proceedings and on the merits under SIPA 4. Following a scheduled hearing, a scheduling hearing on November 1st, 2023, the court directed the special counsel's office to file its SIPA 4 motion by December 4th. On November 22nd, the office filed an ex parte submission under seal, which it styled as, quote, ex parte motion to exceed page limits. That's the one that I read last week about. He wants to do this 85 page motion. The office claimed that neither President Trump nor the public were entitled to be, quote, apprised of the contents of the filing, because in the prosecution's view, the ex parte motion provided sensitive information about the contents of the SIPA Section 4 motion. The office expressed baseless concern about, quote, even disclosing the number of categories or classified information <clears throat> that the government seeks to delete from, from discovery and suggested that the contours and extent of the government SIPA 4 motion are somehow classified or sensitive. These contours, which are now public, are anything but sensitive. 
Rather, the special counsel's office simply notified the court that its motion involves four categories of especially sensitive classified information and that the office planned to seek permission to, quote, delete from or, or substitute in discovery certain specific portions of classified information to protect intelligence equities, particularly the sources and methods involved in collecting the, inte- the subject intelligence. On November 28, 2023, the court denied the motion. The court rejected the proffered reasons for proceeding ex parte in connection with such a basic application. Quote, the instant procedural motions seeking additional pages are not Section 4 motions, nor do they contain or otherwise reveal classified information. And two, the bare reference to the contours of the especially sensitive classified information without more is not a basis to deviate from the presumption against ex parte filings in our adversarial system of justice. Following the court's ruling on November 28, 2023, the, the special counsel's office conferred with defense counsel regarding the request to file an oversized brief. Defense counsel consented to the application, but we were then surprised when the office submitted the motion under seal without any apparent basis. The court subsequently granted the defendant's motion to unseal these submissions. On December 1st, the office asserted that it, quote, sought to file its motion ex parte because it was ancillary to an ex parte proceeding, but consented to all filings of all materials publicly. Hold on. But consented to filing all of the materials publicly. Okay. Ancillary or otherwise, the court had not authorized ex parte proceedings relating to the SIPA 4 motion by the special counsel's office, which is the very issue now being briefed. Discussion. Under the circumstances of this case, the court should permit President Trump's cleared counsel to have attorneys' eyes only access to the SIPA 4 submissions by the special counsel's office in order to facilitate adversarial proceedings regarding critical issues relating to whether the office can withhold discoverable information from the defense. The court should, always, should also require the office to file public redacted versions of the SIPA 4 submissions that reveal the unclassified portions of the documents. Criminal matters include presumptions against ex parte proceedings and in favor of public access. Courts have applied these presumptions to reject ex parte proceedings under SIPA 4. Given the security clearances that have been extended to President Trump and counsel, and the volume of classified discovery produced to date, there is no case-specific reason for ex parte proceedings. The court should be skeptical of boilerplate invocations of vague national security concerns and citations to factually distinguishable, factually indistinguishable, wait, wait, citations to factually distinguishable cases by the special counsel's office, particularly in light of the post-SIPA development of bodies of law under the Freedom of Information Act, in habeas proceedings, and in motions to suppress Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act evidence where parties are granted greater access to filings that summarize sensitive and classified information. Finally, in light of the record of misrepresentations and procedural abuses by the office, the court should not trust the prosecution to be fair stewards of an ex parte proceeding in this complicated case with a factually intricate record and a huge volume of discovery. Part one, the presumption against ex parte proceedings is entitled to great weight. 
the court has already observed that, quote, ex parte communications generally are disfavored because they conflict with a fundamental precept of our system of justice. A fair hearing requires a reasonable opportunity to know the claims of the opposing party and to meet them. The district court in exercising, by the way, that was from, um, in reply to Paradigm Corp, 1986, and then United States v. Napu, 1987, quote, the district court in exercising its discretion must bear in mind that ex parte communications are disfavored. They should be avoided whenever possible, and even when they are appropriate, their scope should be kept to a minimum. Nor is it realistic to assume that the trial court's judgment as to the utility of material for impeachment or other legitimate purposes, however conscientiously made, would exhaust the possibilities. In our adversary system, it is enough for, a, for judges to judge. The determination of what may be useful to the defense can properly and effectively be made only by an advocate. That is from Dennis versus United States, 1966. Another quote from Cayley versus United States 2014. Common sense tells us that secret decisions based only on one side of the story will prove inaccurate more often than those made after hearing from both sides. Thus, ex parte communications create an obvious potential for abuse, which arises from the general concern that the government's information will be less reliable than it is disclosed than if it is disclosed to the defendant. United States versus Belfast, 2007. Courts have rejected ex parte proceedings under SIPA 4. At least three counts, or at least three courts, excuse me, have denied requests by prosecutors to proceed ex parte under SIPA 4. The court should proceed in a similar fashion here, given the unique circumstances presented, including President Trump's prior clearances and access to sensitive information, defense counsel's clearances, the volume of classified discovery that counsel have already been entrusted to handle in an appropriate fashion and the legal and fact-specific defenses arising from the unprecedented nature of this case, which must be brought to bear on all SIPA 4 litigation in this matter. In United States v. Libby, the court explained that it was, quote, disquieted by the prospect of having to make such a determination under SIPA 4 through ex parte proceedings, and trusted that because defense counsel in this case have security clearances, the need for such proceedings will be rare. The court subsequently ordered that redacted versions of sealed ex parte SIPA submissions be filed in the docket because unclassified aspects of those materials can be made available to the public. The special counsel's office has cited United States versus Rezoc from 1994 in another context, but that case does not support its position regarding ex parte filings. Nice. They're going to use a case that Jack Smith previously quoted in a filing against him. In Razak, the court initially granted defense counsel access to SIPA form filing, whereas the defendant was not permitted access to the submission because he was, quote, an accused terrorist who never knew the sensitive information here at issue and never had a security clearance and is unlikely to get one. The government asked too much, however, when it expects, expects this court to exclude defendant's counsel for reviewing the SIPA statements. Defense counsel have received security clearances, and there is every reason to think that Mr. Razok's counsel can be trusted with this sensitive information. 
In light of this, the very strong presumption against ex parte proceedings, even when statutorily statutorily permitted, urges that defense counsel be allowed to review the SIPA material. That's pretty sweet and smart. They're using a case that Jack Smith previously quoted to make an argument, and then they're taking a section of it and being like, yeah, this case that you guys quoted earlier in, the, in, this, in this docket, this issue of SIPA 4 came up, and in that case, even though the defendant was a, lit, was a literal terrorist, his defense counsel had clearances and were allowed to review the SIPA material, even though the defendant himself was not. In a motion for reconsideration, the prosecutors did not challenge the defense counsel's access to that particular SIPA 4 motion. The court agreed to revisit its absolute prohibition on ex parte submissions, but only to the extent that the government was permitted, quote, to file future motions for leave to file submissions ex parte, with the understanding that such motions must be served on the defendant and then litigated in an adversarial hearing before this court. This evening, the special counsel's office failed to do even that much. None of the defendants has been provided with the office's justification for filing the SIPA for motions ex parte. In United States versus Stillwell, the DOJ's Narcotic and Dangerous Drug Section, NDDS, convinced a district court that materials relating to its SIPA for motion were too sensitive to be disclosed to the defense or the prosecutors. On appeal... The Second Circuit, quote, vacated the district court's protective order and ordered those documents disclosed to both parties. United States v. Hunter, 2022. The salient point is that prosecutors often contend inaccurately and perhaps based on improper pressure from intelligence community components with no regard for criminal defendants' rights and the public access rights. The material subject to SIPA for motion are too sensitive to be disclosed to the defense. Libby, Razak, and Stilwell are examples of courts rejecting that position without the resulting parade of horribles that the special counsel's office has suggested would follow disclosure of its SIPA 4 motion. The court need not permit ex parte proceedings under SIPA 4. I definitely need more coffee. I'm going to put more honey in it too. Filter dog. I am reading. Uh, I'm currently reading Trump's team's filing in the docs case, which is asking judge cannon to include defense counsel in his latest SIPA four filings and to make a redacted version of those filings and documents available to the public, which is something that uh, Judge Cannon has already expressed interest in. And I'm already I'm already feeling like this is going to happen, like this motion is going to be granted. I'm feeling pretty confident that that they're going to they're going to get this. Mom's Chunky Monkey, I think Trump previously posted he would not be testifying today. That might be why. In the New York case, pretty sure Trump posted yesterday or the day before that he will not be testifying today. He may change his mind, though. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he changed his mind. 
Um, okay. The court need not permit ex parte proceedings under SIPA 4. SIPA 4 states that the court may allow the office to make a request for such authorization in the form of a written statement to be inspected by the court alone. The office has conceded, as it must, that this language is permissive. And thanks for the shades, filter dog. In contrast, when Congress intended to require ex parte procedures in the national security setting, it did so explicitly by using the term shell. The special counsel's office has also conceded that, under United States v. Campa, a court has discretion, which includes discretion to reject ex parte motions. In Campa, the 11th Circuit held that a district court, quote, did not err by holding the SIPA 4 hearing ex parte. Campa involved five agents of the Cuban Directorate of Intelligence, who... We just had a former ambassador to Cuba indicted for feeding intelligence and classified information to the Cubans, which they no doubt then transferred to other nations hostile to the U.S., I'm sure. Campa is distinguishable from or for the additional reason that the panel believed in that case that, quote, any information that the government withholds under Section 4 must be replaced with redacted documents or substitutes. In this case, the special counsel's office has stated that at least part of its SIPA 4 motion will seek to, quote, delete entirely otherwise discoverable information. I'm really curious about what it is they want to delete. What? Like... I mean, I even think that like Jack Smith using that word delete from discovery was like, it just like sent up a flare. Like it put a spotlight on it. You know, I really want to know what it is they want to delete. And I feel like, I mean, I think this whole thing's planned out anyway. So, um, with both parties working together to draw people's eyes and attention to certain things. So I think we're definitely supposed to focus on whatever it is Jack Smith wanted to delete. Okay, Campa relied on United States versus Magia, which is similar. The defendants in Magia were Colombian drug, or I bet, okay, now that they're Colombian, must be Mejia, right? The defendants in Mejia were Colombian drug traffickers who had spent a lot of time around cocaine labs, but no time in an American skiff. Oh, this, you guys are good. The SIPA 4 motion in Mejia was strikingly similar to the SIPA 4 motions filed in Stillwell. Both were filed by NDDS lawyers without notice to the defense or the line prosecutors. Noting that the motion represented that none of the investigators or attorneys involved in the prosecution or defense of the case knew of the existence or content of the classified material, nor had they been made aware of the filing of the motion by the NDDS. Whereas the Second Circuit in Stillwell was not satisfied that the classified information was properly withheld, the Mejia Court only expressed comfort with the trial judge's ex parte proceedings after it, quote, examined the documents de novo and concluded that, quote, they are not helpful to the defense. Tellingly, and unlike in this case, the Mejia court was able to conduct that review with the benefit of a developed trial record that included the merits argument the defendant had presented to the district court and the jury. Both Campa 
and Mejia relied on a report from the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. The report was authorized by just one of the several committees involved in drafting SIPA. It's related to a it related to a predecessor bill, and it is not persuasive with respect to the position of the special counsel's office in this case. Blanchard versus Bergeron, 1989, Scalia, concurring, ah, oh, Miss Justice Scalia, quote, it is neither compatible with our judicial responsibility of assured, assuring reasoned, consistent, and effective application of the statutes of the United States, nor conducive to a genuine effect, effectuation of congressional intent to give legislative force to each snippet of analysis and even every case citation in committee reports that are increasingly unreliable evidence of what the voting members of Congress actually had in mind. In the footnote of the report that is cited in Campa and Mejia, the committee distinguished between an earlier version of what became SIPA Section 6, which was Section 103 in the House bill, and an earlier version of SIPA Section 4, which was Section 109B in the House bill. The footnote's discussion is problematic because it declared the discovery was, quote, not constitutionally required and could be, quote, completely denied upon a sufficient ex parte showing. This assertion ignored the due process rationale of Brady and its progeny, and it therefore is not a basis to grant the relief sought by the office. It would not, quote, defeat the very purpose of the discovery rules to grant President Trump's cleared counsel attorneys eyes only access to the office's SIPA 4 submission. On September 12, 2023, in response to a question from the court regarding risk associated with allowing Mr. Nada to access classified discovery, the office failed to identify any case-specific issue and instead contended that the risks were not greater than those presented in United States v. Asghari. In Asghari, the Sixth, court, or the Sixth Circuit reversed the district court's decision to grant defense counsel access to a SIPA 4 filing. Similar to Mejia, and unlike here, the trial court in Asghari had already determined that the classified information was not discoverable. The Court of Appeals in Asghari referred to a, quote, clear rule established by Section 4, which, as noted above, the office has conceded does not exist. The court suggested that defense counsel might, quote, make mistakes with the classified information. But that concern would justify withholding all classified information from the defense, which is another position that the office does not defend. Unlike this case, Asgari involved no classified discovery at all, and the office has not suggested, nor could it, that cleared counsel have been anything but extremely careful about handling restrictions on the classified discovery. The Asgari court also claimed that the text of SIPA 4, quote, vests the district court alone with responsibility to make the decision regarding whether the information is relevant. However, while courts make the ultimate decision, as in any motion, they routinely, they routinely consult with defense counsel in ex parte settings regarding the relevant and helpful standard. Thus, the court's role as the arbiter of the, SEP, the SIPA 4 motion is not dispositive on the issue of whether the office should be permitted to file the motion ex parte. For all of these reasons... Asgari does not serve as a persuasive basis to deny President Trump's cleared counsel access to the SIPA 4 motion, 
Rather, the office must present a case-specific consideration that warrants that measure, and it has not done so. Section 4. The government litigates classified issues in other settings without ex parte proceedings. J2 Dank, thank you for the cookie. There are several other settings in which the government litigates issues relating to classified information without ex parte proceedings. The unnecessary insistence on ex parte proceedings by the special counsel's office must be evaluated in this context. First, in FOIA cases, the government often files public declarations from agencies in the intelligence community seeking to invoke statutory FOIA exceptions relating to national security. And this site's Glomar. Or, Glo- or it's, it's Glomar is what it's called. And then it cites Taylor versus NSA from 2015. Quote, when a government agency issues a Glomar response, it must provide a public affidavit explaining in as much detail as is possible the basis for its claim that it can be required neither to confirm nor deny the existence of the requested records. Second, in cases involving habeas petitions and other same-state secrets privileged at issue in SIPA 4 motions, the government commonly permits the defendant and sometimes permits the public to review agency declarations. See United States versus Zubeda from 2022 describing a CIA declaration or Alhella versus Biden 2023. Third, although FISA authorizes ex parte proceedings related to suppression motions, prosecutors sometimes file public redacted versions of their briefs and the accompanying declarations. Defense counsel are not aware of any reason why SIPA for motion should categorically be considered more sensitive than the government's opposition to FISA suppression motions. Part 5. Ex parte proceedings are particularly problematic in light of the prosecution's track record. Ex parte proceedings in this case present more than, quote, an obvious potential for abuse. In, uh, in reply to Colony Square and see also Mitchell versus Forsyth, 1985, Quote, reasoning that the label of national security may cover a multitude of sins and the danger that high federal officials will disregard constitutional rights in their zeal to protect the national security is sufficiently real to counsel against affording such officials an absolute immunity. The special counsel's office has already abused the ex parte process and made other misrepresentations that militate against resolving the SIPA for motions on an ex parte basis. At the outset of this case, the special counsel's office misled the court unapologetically regarding the status of discovery and its production of witness statements. Based on a discussion discussion at the sealed hearing, it now appears that writings of one or more witnesses, which the office previously said it would produce promptly, may be at issue in the office's SIPA 4 motion. Additionally, More than once, the office has sought to proceed on the basis of secret filings rather than complying with firmly established authorities and local rules regarding sealing. And then they cite um, motion number 41, the government's motion. um, Let's see. 
Yeah, that's where uh, Judge Cannon ruled against Special Counsel Smith there. And then again, ECF 100. Uh, the judge ruled against him. In September 2023, the Special Counsel's Office submitted a brief making clear that the office takes an impermissibly dim view of all defense arguments. The office claimed remarkably that the defendants were, quote, arguably adequately equipped to outline a defense theory before receiving any discovery at all and summarized its view of potential defenses in an exceedingly narrow manner that demonstrated that its politically motivated priorities do not include fundamental fairness. The office's suggestion that discovery is not necessary has not aged well in light of the prosecution's mishandling of that process <laughs> and the office's condescending summary of available defenses overlooked key issues in a manner that should concern that court about its handling of the sit before process and other discovery obligations. Great paragraph there. <laughs> <laughs> For example, we have not been provided with any information regarding the procedures the office has employed in connection with SIPA 4. Some authority requires prosecutors to invoke the state secrets privilege through the head of the department, which has control over the matter after actual personal consideration by that officer. From United States v. Rental, 1953. All right. While the attorney general sometimes plays that role in connection with a SIP before motion filed by a local U.S. attorney's office, it is not clear that the attorney general is the appropriate department head in this case brought by the special counsel. SIPA also places restrictions on who may use its procedures that could present additional issues, including under the appointments clause. Denying President Trump's attorney's access to the SIP before filings improperly limits its ability or his ability to engage in motion practices on these issues, much less present legal and factual defenses on the merits to explain why the SIP before standard is not met here. Finally, the recent ex parte motion by the special counsel's office made plain that the office's view regarding when and whether materials are especially sensitive and therefore may warrant ex parte proceedings, is detached from reality. Just last week, the office contended that a now public filing with information regarding the contours of its SIPA 4 motion should be filed ex parte. Now, under SIPA 4, the office seeks to persuade the court, for example, that one, boilerplate discussion regarding national security equities with no direct connection to this case must be shielded from the defense's view, Two, arguments regarding what is helpful to President Trump's defense require no input from those responsible for presenting that defense. And three, unspecified materials, potentially including witness statements that the office agreed to in June to produce promptly from witnesses whose writings have been produced, can fairly be withheld from the defendants or summarized in connection with a case involving over one million pages of discovery. Quote, History teaches us how easily the specter of a threat to national security may be used to justify a wide variety of repressive government actions. How true that is. Given the history in this case, which also includes the clearances of defense counsel and the sensitivities associated with the classified discovery that have been produced, the court should not allow the office to proceed in that fashion. Part six, redacted versions of the SIP before submission should be filed publicly. Redacted filings relating to the FISA suppression motions 
illustrate that the classified litigation does not have to be shielded from the public. Okay, FISA suppression motions. Okay, so am I right? Guys, do you think I'm right that they took out a FISA on President a FISA warrant on President Trump? Who is this FISA stuff for? Who, why is FISA coming up in this? I just got this feeling like they took out a FISA on Trump or someone really close to him and that it's going to blow up. Like it's real. it's like, I, I just wonder. All right. The court should therefore review any request to seal the entirety of the SIPA four submissions with skepticism. And the special counsel's office should not be permitted to seal unclassified portions of the filing, such as introductory language, unclassified arguments, backgrounds of affiance, or citations to the legal authority. See, I just got this feeling like they took out a FISA warrant on him and that it's and that it will come back around like that we're going to deal with a FISA warrant in relation to Trump and Trump's inner circle and the media are going to spend a significant amount of time defending that and then we're going to learn that a FISA warrant was taken out on somebody really close to Hillary Clinton. And I also think it's going to come up in relation to Hunter Biden. Because as I was talking about last week, and as I was talking about last time I defected, I believe that the way that they caught Hunter Biden and eventually flipped him was because they had a FISA on Patrick Ho, which is an, is an established fact. We know that that is the thing. They did have a FISA on Patrick Ho, which meant that they gathered all this intelligence on um, Patrick Ho, and then also people that were two and three hops away from him, which included Hunter Biden, who was only one hop. So I think that we're, I, I can just kind of have this feeling, this is just intuition and feeling, that there's going to be this FISA element of this case that's going to develop and that the media are going to be tricked or baited into defending whatever it was that DOJ did right before it boomerangs right back onto them in relation to the Bidens or perhaps Clinton. I could be wrong, but I just, I just got this feeling. All right. Um, redacted filings relating to FISA suppression motions illustrate that the classified litigation does not have to be shielded from the public. The court should therefore review any request to seal the entirety of the SIPA for submissions with skepticism. And the special counsel's office should not be permitted to seal unclassified portions of the filing, such as introductory language, unclassified arguments, background of affiance, or citations of to legal authority. 
Quote, the value of openness in criminal proceedings extends far beyond just the interest of any particular defendant. That is from United States versus Ignatiak, 2012. Under the First Amendment and at common law, the media and the public have a presumptive right to access criminal proceedings. Sealing is not an all or nothing proposition and filing redacted versions of sensitive materials is often an appropriate way to balance the presumption of access and the interest of one or more parties in a case. That's from United States versus Vive or Vives 2006. And it's something that's been done in this case already on this docket. Accordingly, absent a particularized showing, the special counsel's office should, should be required to file publicly redacted versions of the SIP before filings that reveal unclassified arguments, paragraphs, and citations. Conclusion. For the foregoing reasons, President Trump respectfully submits that the court should order the special counsel's office to provide his cleared counsel with attorney's eyes only access to all SIP before submissions and to file redacted versions of those submissions on the public docket so that the public and the press can access the unclassified portions of the documents. I predict to you that Judge Cannon is going to grant this 17-page motion from Trump's team. Well, Victor Vexelberg, who's mentioning Victor? What's up with Victor Vexelberg? We just talked about him last week. One of my favorite Russian oligarchs to talk about. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Trump's team's going to uh, win this. And you know, what I think what's funny sometimes, like this is one of those times where uh, I love the way things develop because right here, they're asking for um, the judge to order Jack Smith to file redacted versions of those submissions on the public docket so that the public and press can access the unclassified portions. And this is a moment where the media that are hostile to Trump are going to be cheering for Trump to win. Like the media, they want to write that Trump lost his motion. Like that's what they want. In every instance, they just want to write about how Trump loses. Trump denied here. Trump loses this motion. Uh, judge stops Trump from this, whatever. But this is a moment where they're going to be cheering for Trump to win on this motion because they want access to this stuff as badly as anyone, right? So it's just, it's just kind of funny to me. <coughs> now, this filing is actually way bigger, and it has all these exhibits. But it's 157 pages, this filing. Um, I'm going to go through the rest of this stuff later. As I have time. I'm not going to go through it on the show today. There's a whole bunch of exhibits. I want to go through them later. And then next, uh, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but this is defendants Waltine Nada and Carlos de Oliveira. They're basically asking the same thing. Uh, they're saying they're, they're arguing the same thing in relation to these ex parte stuff. They want, uh, um, they want the court to order the special counsel's office sit before submission to be disclosed to the defense counsel for Nada and De Oliveira. So they're, and they even quote some of the same cases, such as United States versus Belfast 2007 and Libby. They're using the same case. It's like a, it's, I'm not going to say it's a copy pasta, but they're, they're making the same arguments for the same reasons. Okay. 
Uh, before I leave this, I'm going to make sure and download this thing. So I don't have to pay for it again. And actually, uh, let me go ahead and copy this title before I save it. So I can paste that in. Just a moment. Uh, why is it? Oh, that'll work. I'll take it. Now that I paid for it, it should be available on the public docket over here. Let me refresh. It should have populated over here. Nope, still hasn't. Something's going on with Pacer because I bought these filings on Pacer. So it should make them available as downloadable PDFs. For some reason, it's not. Okay, in the District of Columbia, we have another filing to read. And before I get to it, I'm probably going to take a break uh, just for a couple minutes. But um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to jump into this docket next, which I already mentioned this docket because we went over Judge Chukin's gag order being very much narrowed. Um, and then we jumped to the DC docket. Now it's time to get onto, uh, or we went to the Florida docket. Now it's time to get on the DC docket in the January 6th case. But I need to, uh, I've drank a lot of coffee, so I need to take a very short break. Let me make sure I have the music. Okay. I got audio right there. Okay. So. What can I give you? Let's, let's grab. Let me see. Is this, let me just check. I gotta check this song and make sure it's the one I want. Yes, it is the one I want. Okay. No, I'm not going to play tool. Uh, there are there are people that uh, would get my video taken down probably if I did that. So, all right, quick quick break. I'll be back in just a like three minutes.
All right. If you can't tell, that's the same band that does my exit music. It's one of my best friends in the whole world that I've known since high school. And uh, Elegant Tiger is his music project. It occurs to me that like people keep on asking me to play guitar on stream. And I really appreciate that. Um, I love to play. I sometimes love to play for people. Um, but... And musicians will understand this. Like this mic is not set up for a music instrument. And in order for me to play a musical instrument, I have to change a lot of things in order for it to capture the sound. Um, like if I just played my acoustic to this mic right now, it would only capture a very like narrow section of the sound being emitted from the guitar. And it would filter out uh, things on the lower and the higher end. And it would sound really weird. I've done it before uh, when experimenting with this mic and um, I just have to do a, there's a lot of setup involved in troubleshooting to get it just right. Um, but it occurs to me that since so many people are requesting it, that at some point I should like end my show with one of my own songs that I have recorded. So maybe I'll do that at some point. It does make me feel a bit vain to do such a thing, but people keep on keep on asking for it and i have a few recordings so maybe at some point i will do that um dranderson says my resolution for the last two days is poor i haven't seen that this looks pretty good to me um yeah it looks good now and it looked good on the replays, so I'm not sure what's up with that. All right, let's go to um, this docket over here. I have, let's see. I have a little less than an hour left of stream time. So let's see. Let's see how I can get, get into this. All right. So in this docket, you may remember that we had the 404B filing, which was fantastic. We had Judge Chutkin, um, pardon me, denying Trump's motions to dismiss on the Constitution and presidential immunity grounds. Pardon me. I'm so sorry. Trump has appealed that. He has appealed that to the 11th Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, which is the same Court of Appeals, I believe, that just ruled in his favor on the gag order. Um, you know, they were never going to completely remove the gag order, if you don't understand that. They were never going to completely destroy the gag order and lift it. They were always going to narrow it, which is what they did. Um, so it's a win for Trump, whether or not media, media reports it as such. It's still a win for Trump. And then Trump's motion for a stay in this case, pending his appeal of the motion to dismiss. So in this one, he argued that, look, this thing is under appeal. My motion to dismiss are under, are under appeal. And until they, those motions are, that motion is heard and the arguments, um, I'm sorry, 
you're right, music and fiction. That was the DC circuit, this, not the 11th circuit. This is going to the 11th circuit. Um, so they they are arguing here that because this stuff is under appeal, I want you guys to stay everything in this case. Uh, like everything happening in this case needs to be paused until my appeal on Judge Chukin's order to deny my dismissal request is is adjudicated, whatever. And that means suspending the schedule, all of that. Now I'm getting all confused because Music and Fiction corrected me. U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. That's where it's being appealed to. There we go. Okay. Um, thanks, Music and Fiction. Okay. Then Judge Chukin came out and said, okay, it's hereby ordered that the government shall file opposition to this by 5 p.m. on Sunday, which he did. Um, here's the trans. This is a note saying right here, it's gone to the Court of Appeals for D.C. And then here is memorandum in opposition by the USA. Ooh, this is huge. And then another one. This is, this is a much shorter one. This is the court should deny the defendant's request for an order staying this proceeding. That's you're right. Accuracy is is paramount. It's of paramount importance. Uh, importance. Yeah. Okay. The defendant incorrectly suggests that such an order would simply memorialize the automatic divestiture rule of Griggs versus Provident Consumer discount 1982 during the pendency of the appeal any number of matters could arise in this case that are not involved in the appeal the court should not enter an order preventing it from handling them furthermore the court should maintain the march 4th trial date that's what's really at issue here can can this appeal that trump has brought play out and them still the, in this this docket this this case still begin trial on March 4th. It is in the interest of the government to have this trial begin and get over with as soon as possible next year, because they're, they're well aware folks that this is actually helping Trump, which is another reason to question whether or not Jack Smith is actually a monster and DOJ is actually this swampy deep state org that Biden has weaponized against Trump. I know that's the narrative, but they are literally helping Trump. <laughs> They're helping him win. They're making him more of an outsider. <laughs> like the more they try to go after him, the more popular he is and the more support he has. Uh, anyway, so they have an interest in making this happen um, as soon as possible so that he doesn't have this going for him deeper into the campaign season. Um, to help ensure that trial proceedings promptly, blah, blah, blah. All right. The court should not assume at this juncture that no issue can arise that is not involved in the appeal. For example, the circuit recently retained the mandate on the court's rule 57.7 order regarding extrajudicial statements. 
That was the gag order. And the court has jurisdiction to administer that order. Likewise, nothing about the defendant's appeal prevents the court from continuing to enforce including, if necessary, by ordering briefing or holding hearings. The protective orders governing discovery and the order imposing conditions of release on the defendant. In addition, while the appeal is pending, the court may the court can make headway on the motions already before it, including the defendant's motions to dismiss based on statutory grounds and selective and vindictive prosecution. The court can and should properly deny these motions under Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 37, Similarly, if the defendant initiates certain litigation, as he has done by filing this stay motion, the court can take it up and resolve it. For its part, in light of the public's strong interest in a prompt trial, the government will seek to ensure the trial proceeds as scheduled. In particular, the government will continue to meet all of its deadlines. This means that while the appeal is pending, although the defendant will not be subject to the burdens of litigation, the government will continue to shoulder its own burden. Accordingly, the government will provide the defendant and the court with any notice required by the pretrial schedule. To the extent that the defendant is seeking a, seeking a stay pending his appeal of matters implicating, quote, those aspects of the case involved in the appeal, the court should deny his motion as unnecessary and duplicative. Otherwise, the court should decline to issue an order that would prevent it from resolving pending motions or handling aspects of the case unrelated to the appeal. So they don't want to stay because they want things to keep on proceeding, right? Rush, rush, rush. All right, now let's go to the big, the big filing. Ooh, it's going to be, I can't, I don't, there's no way I can read this thing before I have to leave, but I'm going to try and burn through it, okay? Government's motion to defendant's discovery motions. The defendant demands an unprecedented expansion of the, the government's discovery. Discovery obligations that would, that would provide special treatment for him and result in delay. He asked this court to find that a wide array of entities, both inside and outside the executive branch, are part of the government's prosecution team. And he further demands that the government search the files of those separate entities for broad categories of information that are not relevant to this case. So Jack Smith is arguing against Trump's sensational motion to compel discovery, where he's asking Judge Chutkin to order the government to turn over all sorts of discovery, namely stuff that aids his case that, hey, I had reason to believe that there was fraud in the election, and that's why I did what I did and said what I said. The defendant's view of discovery is untethered to any statute, rule, or case and lacks both specificity and justification. The information he seeks is not in the government's possession and in many cases does not appear to exist and in any event is not discoverable pursuant to Brady, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 16, or any other authority. The defendant's motion should be denied. This is a, that's sensational. The information Trump seeks is not in the government's possession. Interesting. Remember how I said on the Power Hour that Jack Smith only knows so much, but he doesn't know everything? And the same for the judge. But Trump, he does know. Trump does know. And so there has to be a fear on their side of what exactly is Trump trying to get exact access to and just how, how powerful will it be 
against our case. Because they don't have access to everything Trump had access to when he was president between November and January of 2020, right? <coughs> Applicable law. To camouflage that his demands are unsupported by the facts or the law, the defendant confusingly separates his discovery claim into two separate motions. One, to determine in the abstract the scope of the prosecution team. We didn't actually read that filing in this case. Uh, probably should have, but... Sorry, without reference to any documents claimed to be discoverable. And a second to describe broad categories of information that he speculates exist and asserts are material. But making separate filings betrays the defendant's true intent, which is to disjoin the conjunctive analysis properly undertaken by the courts in this district. One, whether the requested documents are held by an entity that is closely aligned with the prosecution and thus can be easily and fairly obtained by the government. And two, whether the defendant has established that he requests that the requested documents meet the test of materiality. The government sets forth below the applicable law regarding the scope of the prosecution team in this case and the test for whether the information demanded by the defendant is material to preparing the defense. The defendant's contention on both fronts fail. I don't know how Jack Smith can say that when he actually does not know what is contained in what Trump is seeking. Scope of the prosecution team. The government's Brady and Rule 16 obligations extend to all materials in the possession, custody, or control of the prosecution team, which include only the prosecution itself and those entities that are, quote, closely aligned with the prosecution. The closely aligned with the prosecution inquiry is fact-intensive and must be resolved on a case-by-case -case basis. It is limited to entities that have significantly cooperated with and provided substantial information to the government's investigation. Assessing the cooperation and assistance of the Office of the Vice President and the CIA. Okay. Mm, interesting. Okay. Only, only where such a relationship exists and the government has access to the documents will courts in this district consider whether the government should be required to obtain documents that meet the materiality requirement. Because cooperation and access are key to assessing whether an entity is closely aligned with the prosecution, where the government has only obtained documents from another entity by way of subpoena or compulsory process, it does not have access to additional documents from that entity for purposes of discovery. The need for formal process in the acquisition of documents is the antithesis of access, as defined by the above cases. The fact-intensive inquiry, oh wait, it quotes this right here. What is this? No government possession or control of evidence, third party, okay. The fact-intensive inquiry necessarily considers reasonableness because, quote, to require the government to search the files of every agency in the executive branch would not only wreak havoc, but would give the defense access to information not readily available to the prosecution. Properly applied, and as set forth in detail below, the applicable test demonstrates that none of the entities identified by the defendant are part of the prosecution team. Because he cannot satisfy the relevant test, the defendant invents his own standard, misapplies district case law, and contorts facts to his liking. First, the defendant advances his argument largely by creating and then repeatedly relying on a new test that is not the law of this or any other circuit. Whether, quote, another entity actually contributed to the investigation by locating evidence or assisted in some other way. In support of his new test, 
The defendant cites two United States versus Michelle. That would be the Pross Michelle trial with one in DB, which quotes a discussion in Libby about the Ninth Circuit's factual, not legal analysis in United States versus Santiago. But the legal test established by the Ninth Circuit case and whether, quote, the prosecutor has knowledge and access to the documents. The test invented by the defendant is not an accurate statement of the law and is plainly unworkable, as even courts in the Ninth Circuit have found. It would sweep into the prosecution team any entity that in any way provided information to or assisted the investigation, which is neither practical nor legally justified. It would, in the words of Libby, only wreak havoc. Second, the defendant defendant cites United States versus Safavian, 2006, for the notion that the prosecution team is, quote, broadly defined to include all executive branch agencies. But the lone sentence from another court in this district is an outlier and not the law of the D.C. Circuit. The court's holding in Safavian also was narrower than the defendant lets on. There, the court required disclosure only from two closely aligned agencies and acknowledged in a subsequent decision that both, quote, the duty to search and the imputation of knowledge necessarily are bounded by a rule of reason. Third, the defendant relies on factors that have nothing to do with whether the entity in question is, quote, closely aligned with the prosecution, as that test has been interpreted and applied by courts in this district. For example, relying largely on a newspaper article, the defendant spends pages tracing the movements of personnel who might have worked in different offices. But staff shifts occur within the Department of Justice and across executive branch entities with some frequency, and they do not bear on whether an outside entity is, quote, closely aligned with the prosecution. Likewise, as discussed below, the delineation of matters within the special counsel's office has no bearing on the defense discovery demands because he has been provided with the materials to which he is entitled. B. Materiality. Even if the defendant could prove that the scope of the prosecution team was boundless, he is not entitled to discovery unless he can meet his burden of showing materiality, i.e., that the requested discovery, quote, enables the defendant significantly to alter the quantum of proof in his favor, United States v. Graham, 1996. Said differently, an item is material only if, quote, there is a strong indication that it will play an important role in uncovering admissible evidence, aiding witness preparation, or assisting impeachment or rebuttal. In the context of Rule 16, the trial court, quote, starts with the indictment when determining what is material. The phrase, the defense, as it appears in Rule 16, means the defendant's response to the government's case in chief. Where the defendant makes no showing that the requested information will be in service to a valid defense, the corresponding discovery request fails. Overbroad discovery requests, like the defendants here, also fail. I'm skipping some of this, these citations. So too do requests that rely on more speculation rather than facts. Moreover, by definition, cumulative information is not discoverable because it cannot significantly alter the quantum of proof in a given case. And when the requested discovery is, quote, only tangentially relevant, the court may consider other factors, such as the burden on the government that production would entail, or the national security interest at stake in deciding the issue of materiality. Finally, even if something is material, 
district courts retain discretion to narrow discovery. As he has done elsewhere, the defendant miscast relevant case law and incorrectly asserts that materiality, quote, only requires some abstract logical relationship to the issues in the case. Here, the defendant is actually stating the opposite of what the law requires. In United States v. Ross, which the... Um, man, that's a Spanish word I'm going to struggle with. Chichetto? Chichetto Lanos? Court footnote misquoted. The Fifth Circuit held that materiality, quote, means more than the evidence in the question bears some abstract logical relation to relationship to the issues in the case. Subsequent courts in this district have recognized the actual test. An abstract logical relationship to the issues in the case is not, however, sufficient to force the production of discovery under Rule 16. If the defendant cannot show a meaningful link between the information he requests and a legitimate defense, the demand should be rejected. United States v. Sturgeon. The defendant also raises the specter of material yet hidden classified information. But as the defendant has elsewhere recognized, the classified material is not discoverable unless both relevant and helpful to the defense. Fatal to the defendant's insinuations, classified discovery requests are considered under the frame, the same framework as unclassified discovery. Section 2. The court should reject the defendant's arguments for an unprecedented and unsupported expansion of the scope of the prosecution team. The defendant seeks to add to the prosecution team a separate in- investigation. Distinct components of the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and its quarter million employees, the nation's entire military apparatus, the 18 federal agencies that comprise the intelligence community, and a defunct committee of a separate branch of government, that'd be the J6 committee. The defendant already has received the discovery in the possession of the government and agencies that are closely aligned with the prosecution. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. (coughs) Now I'm understanding something. Something just something just clicked with me. So obviously Trump is seeking to get everything from DOJ. And of course the special counsel is directly connected and part of Department of Justice. Trump is seeking information from the Department of Homeland Security because, you know, it's, you know, as he mentioned in his motion to compel, he got CIPA, I mean, um, CISA, CISA. Um, that makes total sense why he wants information from them because they, they, they came to him with a ruling on, um, uh, or with an opinion on the security of the election in 2020. The nation's entire military apparatus is very interesting. What does Trump want from the Pentagon, from the DIA, etc.? And then the 18 federal agencies that comprise the intelligence community, Trump wants information from them. But this right here, the committee, the J6 committee, that's why there is this push like narrative wise to connect the Jack Smith prosecution with the J six committee because Trump needs to get discovery 
on some of that. So they're trying to like, this is where Jack Smith's team is saying, look, the J six committee was part of the house. We have nothing to do with the J six committee. And Trump is trying to connect them to it. Okay. The defendant already has received a discovery in the possession of the government and agencies that are closely aligned with the prosecution. The court should reject the defendant's boundless arguments based on factual misstatements and his invented legal test to extend the government's discovery obligations. All right, next, special counsel's office. The defendant first argues that the prosecution team should encompass the entire special counsel's office, including staff working in the defendant's criminal case in the Southern District of Florida. But precise delineation of the investigative teams within the office is immaterial given the factual record and the defendant's failure to identify any specific material from the Florida investigation to which he is entitled in discovery in this case and does not already have. The government has taken a broad approach to discovery, provided, providing voluminous, comprehensive, and early productions that exceed its obligations. The government also included in discovery in this case other items of overlapping relevance with the Florida case. This practice will continue, including the disclosures of Jinx X materials. That's materials that's to do with internal FBI communications. Moreover, as the defendant's motions make clear, discovery in both cases has been provided to a common set of attorneys and to the same defendant. The defendant has not identified a single document from the Florida case that he believes also should be discoverable here and that he does not already have, despite the government's invitation that he do just that. In some, the defendant demands relief for a problem that does not exist. B. United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. The defendant's next the defendant next tries to define the prosecution team to include personnel at the U.S. Attorney's Office DC. He part- who participated in any investigation relating to the 2020 election or January 6, 2021 event. The defense request is misplaced. The special counsel's office is, by regulation, separate from other components within the Department of Justice. Yeah, but this the special counsel's office picked up investigations that were already ongoing by DOJ and incorporated those investigations into itself. The special counsel's office does not answer to the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, who in turn does not answer to the special counsel. The investigation assumed by the special counsel had been conducted primarily within the U.S. Attorney's Office of D.C., and all case files from that investigation were transferred to the special counsel upon his appointment, like I said. Therefore, thereafter, when the government has received discoverable information from the U.S. D.C., it has made it available to the defendant, and the defendant well knows from multiple discovery letters. The defendant's principal complaint appears to be related to documents from capital breach cases, the government has produced in this case discovery related to the Capitol siege, which includes material generated in the USDC's capital breach cases. In addition, the government twice has offered to provide the defendant access to the highly organized, searchable database for discovery populated by the USDC in those cases. This is the same database access provided as global discovery to counsel for capital breach defendants, which contains law enforcement reports, video search warrants, and other evidence, which by the way, is why like all this like stuff about how Kevin McCarthy is going to provide all the J six tapes. And then Michael Johnson is going to give all the J six tapes. And then Tucker Carlson has access to all the J six tapes. Like I'm not exactly like super excited about that stuff as a means of combating like, like it is a means of like helping the defendants because the defendants already had access to all those things as their own defense attorneys have attested to. 
but like the narrative out there is that oh they're keeping all these j6 tapes secret so that the defendants can't have them and the public doesn't have them either but they're all in a database that everybody can like all the defendants and their attorneys can have always had access to anyways this is one of those fake news things that grinds my gears the defendant has never responded to the government's offers his complaint on this issue is thus undercut by his failure to access the searchable database of materials he claims to want rather than pursue and review discovery available to him the defendant attempts to use as a cudgel the government's unaccepted offers of access to claim the government and usaodc are one and the same they are not and his scope arguments are irrelevant in the abstract do not explain why he believes he is entitled to more than any other January 6th defendant. Well, he's different from every other January 6th defendant. He had far more information than anybody. When functionally, he is in the same position, having received both case-specific discovery and database access, or what more he seeks. Next, the defendant cites United States versus Hisia, 1998, and United States versus Safarinia, 2020, for the anodyne point that the government cannot satisfy its discovery obligations by leaving a defendant to search for a needle in a haystack. But the provision of both substantial case-specific discovery and access to USAODC searchable database meets and exceeds the government's obligations while highlighting information pertinent to the government's anticipated case-in-chief. The court should reject the defendant's undefined demands for more, especially when he has not accessed the discovery already offered. C. FBI Washington Field Office. Howard76. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you very much, man. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure to do what I do. And Dak, thank you for the rant. Thank you for contributing to my AMP fund. Can you play... A 12 Starfire Sunburst. He plays 12 Starfire Sunburst. I do not know what you're referring to. I do not know what you're referring to. I mean, I know what a I know what a Starburst figure top on a guitar is. Oh, this is what you're talking about. A guild starburst. Okay. I don't have much, um, I have played a similar guitar to this. Um, semi-hollow semi bodies, I've only played a couple of. Um, typically not my style. 12 strings, I've played a few 12 strings. I like them here and there. They're like, they're niche, you know? Like, there are times when 12 strings are really suitable for what you want. And then times when they're, they're not for me, typically 12 strings are not suitable for what I'm doing, but I do think they're really cool. I don't own a 12 string. I would like to, um, but I never, I rarely, I never write any, no, I never write any music that is really like 12 string style music. So I see people in chat saying that they that Jack Smith is asking SCOTUS to review Trump's presidential immunity motion to dismiss. Good. I think that's another uh indicator that special that special counsel Smith isn't the monster that uh 
Trump says he is. But it's okay if you believe he is. That's what Trump wants you to believe. It's your choice whether or not you want to know. <laughs> if you want to see through the kayfabe, you can see through it, right? If you don't want to see through it, just enjoy the show. All right. Next, C, FBI Washington Field Office. The defendant's argument regarding the FBI's Washington Field Office echoes those about the special counsel's office and USADC. He makes no effort to identify information he seeks, pointing instead to items he has already received in discovery and asserting and assertions about the FBI from a newspaper article. The government already has made clear that the prosecution team in this case consists of the law enforcement officers working on it, which includes agents from the FBI's Washington field office. The defendant has received or will receive by relevant upcoming deadlines, ample discovery from prosecution team members who are part of the FBI's Washington field office to the extent other individual agents in the office may have worked on charged capital breach cases. Any theoretically relevant discovery in those cases has either been produced or offered to the defendant via the discovery database that he has chosen not to access. Next part D DOJ headquarters. The defendant claims that several department of justice components, including leadership offices, should be included in the prosecution team. But his argument begins and ends in the abstract, and he fails to establish that any of those components are closely aligned with the prosecution, notwithstanding the defendant's speculation that, quote, there are strong indications that some discoverable material exists. He points to no withheld information from these components that is material to the charges against him. As footnote, as the defendant acknowledges, the government has already stated that agents from DOJ OIG and NARA OIG participated in this investigation and has produced related discovery. No current Department of Justice official will be a witness at trial. Interesting. To complain about information that he did not receive in discovery, the defendant appends information that he did receive in discovery. Nowhere does he state with any specificity what other information he believes should be produced. He further asserts that, quote, current and former senior leaders of the Justice Department are likely witnesses in the case. But these fact witnesses, who are not current officials, will testify about events alleged in the indictment. This is distinct from and has no bearing on whether the offices were and where in fact, he meant, he meant were, were fact witnesses once worked are close or where fact witnesses once worked closely aligned with the prosecution in this case. The defendant's argument about quote high level DOJ participation in the development of this investigation similarly fails to show close alignment, particularly where it only amounts to an assertion that some DOJ officials were unremarkably briefed on the investigation or as required by the justice manual, were consulted during the cases separately investigated by the USADC. Aside from making a broad assertion about Jinx Act and Giglio materials, which the government has produced and will continue to produce, the defendant does not request any particular information that is material to the indictment, instead claiming that there are, quote, emails and electronic records that appear to be missing. 
in making this claim that the defendant fails to inform the court of or include as an attachment the government's August 22nd, 2023 discovery production letter in which the government details that it was producing that day exactly what the defendant now claims is missing. Quote, relevant materials from the email boxes, mobile devices, and select files of senior Department of Justice leadership during the defendant's administration broken out in the source log by specific custodian. In sum, the absence of any specific request for additional information material to the charges, particularly in light of the comprehensive discovery already produced, provides no ground for subsuming an array of department components into the prosecution team. E. Department of Homeland Security The defendant moves next to DHS, focusing his scope of prosecution team arguments on the U.S. Secret Service and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Here again, his argument fails because they are not part of the prosecution team, and he has already been provided with the material related to those agencies that is in the possession of the government. First, regarding the U.S. Secret Service. Much, if not all, discoverable material from it was obtained through compulsory process, demonstrating that the agency is not part of the prosecution team. In addition, that material, which is only marginally relevant and yet constitutes a sizable portion of the discovery, has already been provided to the defendant. Though the defendant points to the fact that the government obtained during the investigation several official phones from United States Secret Service employees, he fails to inform the court that the phones did not contain any recoverable information. Ooh. And that, though informed that the government intended to return the phones to the Secret Service by a certain date, he failed to interpose an objection. Hmm. So we had... um. We are we have this separate investigation of United States Secret Service personnel who deleted a bunch of stuff from their phones. And now we're learning that the special counsel team actually obtained those phones. And that discovery on those phones has been provided to Trump's team, but the phones did not contain any recoverable information. They were wiped. There's a lot more to that. Finally, additional U.S. Secret Service information is contained in the USDC's discovery base database. Against his this backdrop, the defendant fails to identify a single item or category of items from the United States Secret Service or DHS more broadly that he does not already have. What he says he needs or that will significantly alter the quantum of proof in his favor. The defendant's arguments over material from CISA are also unavailing. The defendant suggests that CISA assisted the investigations and thus must be part of the prosecution team simply because CISA documents were produced to the special counsel's office and because the charges against the defendant include reference to CISA. Even under the defendant's telling, though, the, the facts do not show the easy access necessary to bring CISA within the scope of the prosecution team. As shown by the exhibit, the defendant cites in support the agency produced documents which have been provided to the defendant in response to compulsory process. 
In addition, as part of its investigation, the government interviewed a single current CISA employee and did so in the presence of the agency's attorneys. That interview has been provided in discovery and these limited interactions do not constitute the significant cooperation and access that would lead to finding an entity closely aligned with the prosecution team. Part F, Department of Defense, Office of National, Director of National Intelligence, and the CIA. The defendant seeks to draw three additional agencies, DOD, ODNI, and CIA, into the prosecution team based on a vague assertion of coordination and sharing between these agencies and the government. But note five. Yeah, ODNI collects and analyzes information from the entire community. Okay. Yet the defendant's motion is devoid of facts to support such a finding. Rather, the defendant's assertions show only that individuals formerly with some of those agencies may be fact witnesses in this case, namely um, Ratcliffe. With respect to the DOD, the defendant asserts that components of DOD assisted in the government's investigation, but fails to identify those components, much less specify any item from DOD that are material to this case. Absent such specificity, what the defendant requests is for the government to search the holdings of a military apparatus that employs 3 million people for information related to the events of January 6th. The 3 million people thing doesn't matter one bit. He's just including that to make it seem way bigger than what it is. And it's investigation are way more burdensome on him than it actually is. That's the only reason he's mentioning 3 million people. In its investigation, the government has interviewed one then current, now former DOD official, that's probably Chris Miller, and a small number of former DOD officials, all of whom were fact witnesses to the defendant's conduct during the charged conspiracies and provided the defense with discoverable items produced by DOD, as well as everything related to DOD received from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The defendant's one-sentence assertion regarding the CIA similarly, call, similarly calls for an impermissibly broad interpretation of the prosecution team. The defendant tries to import the CIA into the prosecution team based only on implied coordination between the CIA and the special counsel's office prosecutors in the Florida case. But like a U.S. attorney's office in which the existence of a tax unit that works with IRS agents does not require a search of all IRS records in all other cases handled by that U.S. attorney's office, the CIA's relevance to a separate investigation, even within the special counsel's office, does not sweep the agency into the scope of the prosecution team here. With respect to ODNI, the government interviewed two ODNI witnesses, so that would be Ratcliffe and one other person, neither of whom was employed by the agency at the time. Oh, okay, yeah, they're former. It is issued compulsory process to both witnesses prior to voluntary interviews and thereafter produced transcripts and exhibits to the defense. These limited contacts provide no justification for an expansive order designating these defense and intelligence agencies as part of the prosecution team for all purposes. The defendant's authorities do not suggest otherwise. The case does not impose on the government, as the defendant suggests, a generalized obligation to obtain information for the defense from entities that are not part of the prosecution team. Likewise, the defendant cites United States v. Gonzalez from 2020, but that case did not bear on the scope of the prosecution team. Rather, at issue was simply whether the prosecution had reviewed documents obtained by the Treasury Department's OFAC. 
The court did not designate OFAC or the Treasury Department as part of the prosecution team. These cases thus provide no support for the contention that DOD, ODNI, or the CIA are part of the prosecution team. The Select Committee. Finally, the defendant speculates about coordination and extensive access to argue that the prosecution team here includes the Select Committee. This argument relies on one newspaper article, while dismissing reporting that the contradicts the defendant's narrative as, quote, based on self-serving leaks. It also rests on the assertion that the U.S. Attorney's Office for D.C. acted as the committee's enforcer, simply by prosecuting contempt of Congress charges following proper criminal charge referrals. The defendant's speculation provides no authority for this court to redefine the prosecution team to include a legislative body from another branch of government, something no other court has done. And then it references United States versus Bannon from 2022. In context of the Capitol breach, cases specifically, courts in this district have rejected requests, like this one, that would bring the select select committee within the ambit of the prosecution team. In any event, the government already has produced to the defendant the items it obtained from the select committee, which the defendant's motion admits includes, quote, non-public items and transcripts of witness interviews. The defendant offers no reason to extend the government's obligations to cover unidentified item, unidentified items solely in Congress's possession. Section 3. The court should deny the defendant's discovery demands because he fails to establish their materiality. As the defendant admits, any materiality analysis begins with the indictment. The indictment alleges specific false assertions of fact, and the government has provided substantial discovery regarding those allegations. One would think that the defendant's discovery request, therefore, would focus on specific documents, information, and intelligence that he he was aware of and relied on at the time that he made his false statements, perhaps in an effort to show good faith reliance on that information or or to support a claim regarding its veracity. But the defendant's discovery requests do not do so because no such evidence exists. Instead, the defendant tries a variety of speculative diversions to matters irrelevant to the indictment, seeking information that is not material within the meaning of Rule 16. The defendant attempts to justify his broad request with the unremarkable proposition that the government's discovery obligations cannot be combined I think he meant combined here or cabined by beliefs or assumptions that the defendant's defenses lack merit. Contrary to the defendant's unsupported claim, the government is not shirking its discovery obligations. Rather, he seeks non-discoverable information that is not in the prosecution team's possession and that in some cases does not exist. Foreign meddling in the 2020 election. The defendant's discovery motions conflate two distinct concepts, foreign interference and foreign influence. While claiming inaccurately, while claiming inaccurately that the government has withheld evidence of both. Since the defendant weaves this false narrative through many of his discovery categories, the government briefly addresses here the concepts as they relate to the 2020 presidential election and to the indictment. Interference is defined by the intelligence community as foreign efforts targeting the technical aspects of voting, tabulation, or reporting. 
For example, if a foreign or cyber actor hacked into a voting machine and flipped votes from the defendant to candidate Biden, something for which no evidence exists, this would have been interference. In contrast, influence describes foreign efforts to spread disinformation, often to falsely denigrate or support a candidate. So confusion, exacerbate political tensions, undermine confidence in the electoral process, or otherwise influence the hearts and minds of American citizens. The indictment alleges that the defendant spread knowing lies regarding foreign interference when he falsely claimed that, quote, voting machines had changed votes from the defendant to votes for Biden. And the defendant has been provided with the relevant discovery on this topic. As explained further below, the defendant's discovery motions contain inaccurate information about foreign interference in the 2020 election, discuss irrelevant foreign influence in an attempt to blame others for his own conduct, and fails entirely to establish the materiality of any information he demands beyond that which he already has been provided. Foreign Interference The unanimous conclusion of the intelligence community which includes 18 federal agencies, was that there was no evidence of foreign interference in voting registration, voting, or vote counting in the 2020 presidential election. This conclusion was reflected in an ICA titled Foreign Threats to the 2020 U.S. Federal Elections, prepared by ODNI under the direction of the defendant's Director of National Intelligence and Principal Intelligence Advisor. The ICA synthesized evidence collected by the intelligence community writ large and addressed foreign attempts to, one, interfere with, and to influence the 2020 presidential election. On January 7th, 2021, the DNI sent the defendant and Congress the ICA on foreign inter- meddling in the 2020 election. A declassification version or declassified version of the assessment was published two months later. Key findings Key judgment one, we have no indication that any foreign actor attempted to alter any technical aspect of the voting process in 2020. Key judgment two, Russia deployed influence operations to help the defendant denigrate candidate Biden, undermine confidence in the electoral process, and exacerbate sociopolitical division in the United States. Key judgment three, Iran deployed an influence campaign to hurt the defendant without promoting another candidate. Key judgment four, China did not deploy interference efforts. China considered but did not deploy influence efforts. The minority view shared by the National Intelligence Officer for Cyber and DNI was that China did engage in some influence, influence efforts, but not interference. Key judgment five, a range of foreign actors, including Hezbollah, Cuba, and Venezuela, made some attempts to influence the election. The intelligence community was not alone in its assessment that no foreign country interfered with the election. In the weeks following the defendant's electoral defeat, he publicly declared the 2020 election had been, quote, virtually impenetrable from foreign interference. November 17, 2020, at Real Donald Trump tweet. The defendant was joined in this view by every other knowledgeable official from his administration who the government has interviewed. Furthermore, in February 2021, after the defendant left office, the Department of Justice and DHS published a joint materiality assessment discrediting any claims of interference with the election, writing that collectively, federal law enforcement had, quote, no evidence that any foreign government affiliated actor 
prevented voting, changed votes, or disrupted the ability to tally votes or to transmit election results in a timely manner, altered any technical aspect of the voting process, or otherwise compromised the integrity of voter registration information on of any ballots cast during the 2020 federal elections. In short, and relevant to the indictment, there is no evidence to support the defendant's false claims of voting machine fraud. In support of his motion to compel, the defendant suggests that the government relied only on a selection of politically biased officials, but he does not and cannot substantiate this theatrical claim. To the contrary, as the defendant is aware from the discovery that has been provided, the government asked every pertinent witness, including the former DNI, former acti- acting secretary of DHS, former acting deputy secretary of DHS, former CISA director, former acting CISA director, former CISA senior cyber counsel, former national security advisor, former deputy NSA, former chief of staff to the National Security Council, former chairman of the Election Assistance Commission, presidential intelligence briefer, former secretary of defense, and former senior DOJ leadership. If they were aware of any evidence that a domestic or foreign actor flipped a single vote in a voting machine during the presidential election, the answer from every single official was no. To create the false impression that there might actually be support for his lies about voting machines, the defendant, without context, threads his filing with discussion of irrelevant network breaches around the time of the 2020 election, arguing that compromises of, quote, several networks that manage some election functions were enough to call into question the security of the election. In doing so, the defendant attempts, attempts to manufacture confusion by willfully ignoring the distinction between voting machines charged in the indictment and registration websites not charged in the indictment. Voting machines, like those manufactured by Dominion, are the systems used to cast and tabulate votes. They are not connected to the internet, cannot be accessed remotely, and are secured through redundant protections such as logic and accuracy testing, paper ballot audits, forensic scans, robust physical security, and federal certification. The states also run voter registration databases, which can be remotely accessed but are not used for voting or tabulation. While no country or cyber actor changed a single vote in a machine, there were isolated cases of foreign countries stealing registration data to target voters with disinformation, actions that constituted foreign influence, not interference. Ignoring this distinction, the defendant argues the DOJ-DHS materiality assessment is inconsistent and heavily caveated on foreign interference, but omits what the report actually says. For instance, the defendant tells the court that the agencies acknowledge, quote, broad Russian and Iranian campaigns that did compromise the security of several networks that manage some election functions. But misleadingly chops off the second half of the sentence, which made clear that the network compromises did not materially affect the integrity of voter data, the ability to vote, the tabulation of votes, or the timely transmission of election results. In other words, 
The network breaches had nothing to do with the defendant's false claims about the machines used to cast and tabulate votes. To summarize, following the 2020 election, the defendant persistently spread lies that voting machines were fraudulently used to change his votes to candidate Biden. Federal law enforcement, the intelligence community, state officials and councils of government and private sector entities universally stated in real time that there was no evidence that a foreign or cyber actor changed a single vote or otherwise interfered with technical election processes, conclusively showing the defendant told specific lies to his followers about voting machines. In his discovery motions, the defendant, in part based on his deliberate misinterpretation of the materiality assessment, wrongly insinuates there might have been interference with the technical aspects of voting, then says he wants to use unidentified foreign interference evidence at trial. He is moving to compel something that does not exist, is not in the prosecution team's possession, and could not have been known to the defendant at the time he inspired his followers with pernicious claims of voting machine fraud. The court should not entertain the defense attempts to inject confusion into the record when it does not exist. Okay. I am out of time and I really want to finish reading this because one, it's super intriguing. And I think Jack Smith is actually messing up. Like, as I'm reading this, what's coming into my mind is that Jack Smith is bringing up and trying to attest to the security of election machines whose security has already been substantially called into question by a number of different entities. And I don't think it's going to go well for him. Um, so I'm kind of reading this and why, like I could see how people would react to it with, grr, that's not true. I'm reading it. Like, go ahead and try that. You know, like go ahead and try and make that case that they're all so totally secure Two, I'm thinking about how concerns about foreign interference in the 2020 election or any election, but specifically in 2020, the concerns about interference in the 2020 election by foreign actors, whether or not they flipped votes, it doesn't really matter whether or not they were able to do that. What matters is whether or not in Trump's state of mind, he had information that led him to believe that that was a possibility and then therefore proceeded as he did because he believed that that was a possibility and he wanted it investigated. There's nothing criminal about that. There's nothing unethical about it. It would be unethical if Trump didn't have concerns and didn't direct government agencies and state officials to look into it, right? The other thing I'm noticing, and this was more this was more happening in the earlier part of this filing, is he kept Jack Smith on several points said he had already turned this stuff over to Trump's team. They already had discovery on this stuff. You know, there were like several things early in this filing that Jack Smith was addressing. And he was saying, Trump's team has already been provided with this. Trump's team has already been provided with that. And I think 
one reading on that is that, oh, well, Trump's team is kind of being a doofus here. Like they're kind of being dumb. They're asking for Jack Smith to produce things he's already produced. Why would they do that? Do they not notice? Did they not? Are they not even looking at what Jack Smith has already provided? And I don't think that's it. I think that Trump's team is asking for things they already have because they're making sure the public knows what they have. In other words, us. Those of us who pay attention to these things. I think the reason, I think it's probably true what Jack Smith wrote, that Trump's team already has access to this stuff they're now requesting a motion, they, an order to compel discovery on. They've, it's, they've already been provided with it, Judge. So why would Trump bring it up again? I think to make sure we know he already has it. Um, interesting filing. And there's more of it. We're only halfway through, but I have to go. I don't have a choice. So let's pick this one up again on Wednesday and we'll finish it. Um, oh, and there's another thing I'm thinking of. I personally don't think, and I have not seen evidence that compels me to believe that the majority, anywhere near the majority of fraud in the 2020 election occurred by way of foreign interference flipping votes. I'm aware of all the different quote unquote documentaries. I'm aware of all the various threads and reports and other things, which basically just allow somebody's own biases and beliefs to just be inserted. So if you already believe that all the votes were switched from Biden to from Trump to Biden, um, then you're going to watch that stuff or read that stuff and you're going to already have your conclusions there, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying that none of that happened at all. I'm just saying I haven't seen sufficiently compelling evidence that the primary method of voter fraud in 2020 had anything to do with foreign actors getting inside machines and flipping votes. Not saying it didn't happen. I'm saying I haven't seen sufficient evidence that that was the primary method of fraud. I think the primary method of fraud was much more mundane than that and ground level. Um, I think that it was primarily mass mail-in ballots and dead people voting and votes going to adjudication because of the machines being intentionally misconfigured so that ballots would go to adjudication. And then the worker who was biased against Trump would manipulate what was adjudicated in favor of Biden. And I think that happened in Republican counties and Democrat counties, because I think the GOP establishment is just as responsible for fraud in the 2020 election as the Dem establishment. And the reason you can know that is because look at how many Republican candidates who were on the ballot with Trump won and Trump lost in their county or did significantly less well than you would expect. That happened because the GOP establishment stole the election from Trump just as much as the Dems did. So 
I think that's where it really happened. I think that's that's like that's the primary area where fraud occurred. And I think this foreign interference, vote flipping through hacking of Dominion machine type stuff. I'm not saying there's no evidence of it or there's no reason to investigate it. I'm just saying that I don't think it's personally, I don't think it's the number one method by which the election was stolen from Trump. So I'm willing, I'm willing to uh, be convinced of that. I'm very willing to be convinced of it, but so far I'm not. And I, and I also will add the effort to convince us that machines are the sole way or the primary method by which the election was stolen seems artificial to me. It seems to be a purposeful op to get us to focus on things like that and distract us from the local swampiness to distract us from the mail-in ballots, to distract us from the adjudication, to distract us from there not being supervisors and poll watchers, like all that kind of stuff. Like I just think it's way more simple than that. And just like with the vaccines, there are these ops that spread misinformation and disinformation that try to convince us of these really, really extreme theories that are super complicated and nefarious, but they're sensational. So everybody's eyeballs and ears goes towards this sensational claim and away from what is much more direct and simple. Uh, but that's my opinion. So, all right, I have to run. Y'all have a blessed day. Thank you very much for supporting the show. Hit that thumbs up. Share it out. I'll make some clips of this show. Watch for it on the clips playlist on my Rumble channel. If you're interested in supporting the show or if you're interested in a podcast version, justhuman.substack.com is where that's at. My affiliate links are in the description. My affiliate links are also on my link tree. Y'all have a blessed Monday. Remember, we're not going to win every battle. We are going to win this war. Have a great Monday. I'll see you later.